Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, shut up, please, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. That's enough. Now, <laughs> Bill, how are you doing? Man, I couldn't be better. Life is good. Yes, yeah. it is. And we've got so much that is just cracking over here at Mormonism Live. Yeah. Do you want to make any kind of introductory comments before I start the uh, sacrament meeting with the list of announcements? The only thing I want to say is please subscribe. Please like uh, the video. Please give us a five-star review. And uh, if you're up for it, we'd take a $5 recurring donation as well. Visit mormonismlive.org, click the donate button, send us a few bucks. And uh, I think you're really going to love tonight's show, RFM. You've put a lot of work into this, and I'm excited for the topic. I put so much work into this. 50% is going to be on the cutting room floor. We won't even get to it tonight. But what we will get to is primo, primo mm. Mormonism Live stuff. Tonight's show is called Whatever Happened to the Great Apostasy. But before we get to that, first, some announcements. The first one has to do with Thrive in St. George, your stomping grounds, I understand, Mr. Real. Is that right? And is that coming up? Yeah, that is, uh, I believe, February 24th, 25th, maybe 26th. To and the 26th. 26th is Sunday, yes. Yeah. And so there's going to be a lot of great speakers. I heard there's a late edition. I think the, the main speaker signed up late, and I heard it's Radio Free Mormon. Yeah, somebody realized that they had forgotten to ask me. And somebody reminded them at somebody's insistence. But further than that, your affiant saith not. Gotcha. And uh, I think there's quite a crowd going to be there. Um, you know, I think uh, I think Alan Mount's there, right? Um, yes, right. Well, don't forget his, his, well, yes, Katie with two yeah. T's. Uh, is Anthony Miller, I think, there? Uh, I'll be speaking remember, for a actually. few minutes. My wife's going to join me. So we're really excited, folks. You ought to sign up for Thrive in St. George. It sounds like it's going to be a blast, plus some karaoke. Uh, yeah, I'll probably skip that. By the way, Bill, Bill, where should people go to sign up? Hopefully you know the answer because I didn't oh, brief this man. with you beforehand. Uh, no, you, you should have said something beforehand, but I'm just going to look. Oh, sorry. I'll I... put... No, no, you're good. I'll put a comment here in the uh, – I'll put a link here in the comments so that folks can sign up. I'll find it here in just two seconds. I should have had that ready. Um, I'm going to blame it on Rebecca Biblioteca, who is being her usual distracting self. Yeah, why don't you turn some time over to them and let them do their thing? And then oh, why don't we let them do their the thing? What's that? We have our we have our friends from Mormon Book Review, which yeah. is, uh, I think we need to get the order correct. It's Steve Pinecker and Rebecca Biblioteca, not to be confused with Rebecca Biblioteca and Steve Pinecker. And they have now uh, less than three minutes to make their announcement. There's a great premiere that's going on, apparently, down in Utah of a film. And these two are behind it. They're promoting it. And we graciously decided to give them a little time on our show in order to let everybody else know about it as well. Greetings. Welcome, Steve and Rebecca. If that is who you really are. 
movie premiere. We had to do with the sunglasses for the movie premiere. We're getting all Hollywood on you guys. So we just wanted to announce that uh, Rebecca Biblioteca, of course, she is with uh, our Mormon Media Reviews. And uh, we did a special interview uh, last month in December with Jeff Pingree. And, uh, it's, and it's about a movie uh, called The Return of Elder Pingree. And it's really a fantastic film. And it's a film that's for everybody. I would say for uh, post-Mormons and even, uh, even uh, TBMs. Because in many ways, he, t- he has left the church, but it's really a powerful story. So what we did was, Rebecca, tell him what we did. We rented a movie theater and tell him the, the dates and the times. Yep, this is absolutely true. This is an amazing um, award-winning documentary by an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, Jeff Pingree. And the film is called The Return of Elder Pingree, Memoir of a Departed Mormon. So it's basically the story of him returning years later to his mission in Guatemala and talking to the people and sort of deconstructing his experience there. So we were so passionate about this film that we wanted to make it available to anybody that wanted to see it. So we have made arrangements at Bruvie's Cinema Pub, if you're familiar with that, in the Salt Lake area, to show this film. And the date is going to be the day before Valentine's Day. So easy to remember, February 13th. It's going to be at 6 p.m. There's a meet and greet. The film starts right at 7 o'clock. And then there's a Q&A afterwards because the most exciting part is that Jeff is going to be joining us. And I know he's watching right now. So a huge shout out to Jeff. He's an amazing person. This is an amazing film. And, we, and it's completely free of charge. And because it's at a cinema pub, you must be 21 or over to attend. But otherwise, free, just show up, meet Jeff, meet Steve is flying in from Florida. I mean, we're hoping there might be some kind of a red carpet, maybe a patch of a red carpet. Anyway, we're trying. (laughs) Yeah. And so uh, just to remember, it's free to enter. But if you want to pay for your food, you got to pay for your food. And we're also going to try to tie in a a charity to this as well. So if people want to make donations to a charity that's universally uh, recognized and, and loved, we are going to try to tie in a charitable aspect to this as well. And so I'll be flying out February 7th through the 17th. I'll be in Utah and we will be doing the uh, on the 13th, Monday, the 13th. Remember, 6 p.m. We're going to be having our movie. And we are so grateful to RFM and Bill Real for giving us three freaking minutes of Mormonism live. You guys are the bomb. Thank you for letting us come on. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. You're welcome. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Steve and Rebecca. I wish you all the success with this wonderful, wonderful movie. See you later. Bye-bye. So there's one. Hey, have you figured out about Thrive yet? Mr. Real. Hmm. Wow. Shall we all say it together, folks? It looks like you're muted, Bill. Dang it. All right. So I put in the comments, so Maven put the flyer up. Thank you, Maven, for doing that. Notice the knockout lineup. So yes, um, man, that, that's pretty awesome. Just the group of people that are speaking. Um, I, in the comments, it's www.thrivebeyondreligion.com events uh, with an S on the end backslash or slash, I guess. And then H, uh, then it's also thrivebeyondreligion.com event slash Thrive St. George tickets. And again, I'm, I don't want to give all the dashes and stuff, but it's in the comments. Folks can uh, copy and paste it into their browser and should get you there. Um, tickets, I think, are 30 bucks a piece. And it's a three-day event. And there's parties after some of the events. And the speakers are uh, incredible. And I think it's just going to be a really fun weekend for people trying to figure out how to thrive after uh, after religion. I think it's going to be a great time, and I'm glad that I finally got invited to speak. Love it. 
Yeah, yeah, they, they knocked <laughs> me down. They knocked me down from uh, thirty-five minutes to five minutes. They said you got to take a bunch of my time. So, I'm sorry, your collateral damage. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but okay, so the third thing, the third thing we have to talk about, Mister Real, is next week's show, having to do with Florida and homicide and Derek Corden. Uh, yeah. So you got the documents this week that you've been that you requested five months ago. I got some of them, yeah. You, you, yeah. Let's, you know, let's not tease her too bad. <laughs> okay, but, okay. Uh, but I will say that, folks, there, there are things yet to be revealed uh, in in this whole uh, this whole escapade with, unfortunately, the life of uh, of the young Corden uh, child. Um, but the the situation just keeps getting stranger, doesn't it, RFM? Yeah, it does. And we will go over that. We'll let you know everything that we know next week on Mormonism Live. We we didn't want to do it tonight. We had a plan tonight. And on top of that, there are just some things that we want to be very careful of with these documents that we yeah. cross our T's and dot our I's in a deliberative fashion before we go public with it. And so that's the other reason that we're going to have it next week instead of tonight. And we should just say, like, they're really wasn't well and of course we'll speak to this next week but there really wasn't much redaction on their end and we felt like there should be significantly more redaction than the documents that we got and so as you pointed out we're gonna spend this week really combing over those and making sure that we are appropriate and how we how we present this yeah yeah okay so enough of the announcements anything else mr real anything else maven mm. no Okay, she's not popping in to join us, so I'm guessing that means no. Yep. Okay, then once again, tonight's show being, whatever happened to the great apostasy? You know, Bill, when I joined this church, which was a long time ago, it was uh, like 1978, and one of the missionary discussions that I got was about the apostasy and the restoration. I mean, that's its whole discussion back then. And it's what I learned in the church. It's what I taught when I was on my mission. This is a key doctrine of the LDS church. And the reason we're talking about it tonight is because a new book has just been published by the Neil A. Maxwell Institute, which used to be farms, but the significance of it is really, I think that it is a wholly owned subsidiary now and has been for some time of BYU, which itself is a wholly owned subsidiary of guess what? The LDS church. So, I'm thinking there's got to be some kind of higher up ecclesiastical okay to publish this book before it ever hits the press. What do you think about that, Bill? Well, on one hand, I wonder if anybody in the top 15 read it, because as we're going to point out tonight, there there's a lot in there, and it's certainly, it's a game changer. I'll say it that way. And I'll say too, just like you, I mean, I joined the church in 96, and it was clearly taught to me the restoration was needed because there was a great apostasy. And I was given all the data that we'll go over tonight um, that points to there being a great apostasy and just how great it was. And it's now starting to seem like things aren't exactly what they used to be. No, we are witnessing a moment of transition. And I think that as I am witnessing it, by the way, this transition is going to be this, just to not leave you hanging. The idea is that now the 
great apostasy is no longer so great. It's not really even an apostasy mm-hmm. anymore. And so they're taking away this whole idea of the great apostasy, which I learned about, and which, by the way, is still being taught by the church in other manuals and in other places. So we have two messages that are coming forward. And what I expect to have happen is that here's the message that's been there for 200 years, which is the one about the apostasy and the great apostasy and the restoration. And now we start having this other message coming forward and being talked about. And before you know it, that old message is going to be retired. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to emphasize it. And now we're just going to be left with the one that seems to be being introduced as a substitute because these two do not go together. They're like oil and water, two ideas. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. But the first thing we want to talk about is what the heck this great apostasy teaching was in the LDS church. Hmm. So like I say, when I joined the church, right before I joined the church, I took the missionary discussions and I learned about the great apostasy. And this whole apostasy thing isn't an ancillary teaching in the LDS church. It's not uh, how we calculate tithing. It's not the word of wisdom and what's allowed and what's not and how do we interpret hot drinks. This idea of the apostasy is the whole raison debt of the church. There's no reason to have the LDS church unless there was an apostasy. You don't have a restoration without an apostasy. They go together like love and marriage, right? Exactly. That's how it was taught. And it makes sense, at least, if you have that in mind. And what's coming going on is now it's making less sense. And more and more, the church seems to be untethering itself from this doctrine of the great apostasy in order to give itself more freedom to make changes that have little to nothing to do with the past, including the scriptures. But at the same time as they're doing this, and I know I'm getting to my conclusion first, but that's okay. I like to do that sometimes to let people know where we're going so that they can track what it is we're talking about as we're talking about it. At the same time, they're loosening themselves from this idea of the apostasy to give themselves more freedom to do whatever they want. At the same time they're doing that, they are undercutting the entire reason for having a restoration and having a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the first place. So, Bill, you're talking about you. Look, everybody who's been a member of the church for more than five minutes knows about this, right? We're just preserving this for posterity. And a lot of this will be a review tonight. But the apostasy happened in four main ways. Now, it was the priesthood. Yeah, we get that. And by the way, once again, spoiler alert, this is where everything else is going to go away as far as an apostasy and a restoration, except for the priesthood and its keys. That's going to be the new thing. But it used to be the priesthood and it used to be the offices in the church. See Article of Faith number six. We'll get to that here in a second. And it used to be um, the doctrine of the church. And the one that got harped on the most was about the doctrine of the Godhead. So it's priesthood, it's offices, it's doctrine and it's ordinances. There's a fourfold thing that I could come up with as far as what the apostasy constituted. And it's not just the priesthood and the ordinances had to be kept the same as well. And they had to be restored again in the last days. We'll get to some quotes from Joseph Smith about that. But my goodness, there was an entire book that was written about this. It was called The Great Apostasy. I think it was 1909, James Talmadge. I read this book and I read it before I went on my mission. Did you ever read this book, Bill? 
Yeah, and and so the great apostasy was something that I was deeply aware of. Like I, I was telling you yesterday, I had this book, The Missionary Pale, which is just a little black book that all the missionaries had, not a correlated item. It was something that you could buy, I think, Deseret, uh, or, uh, Deseret book, but it wasn't part of the church's program per se. But it had all the scriptures of how Catholicism had uh, fallen away, how the Dark Ages had affected the church how these offices were lost, how the ordinances have been corrupted, and it went through all of it. And The Great Apostasy, the book by Talmadge, does the exact same thing. In fact, it's like a, is it 300 pages, 200 pages? But it's a lot of material uh, going into yeah. deep detail about all the facets of the church that went awry in the early church and now had to be restored. And I, I don't want to say one more thing before you continue, which is Mormonism is led by a lay ministry even at the very top, these leaders are lawyers and accountants and other things, you know, presidents of a university. But for some reason, they don't seem to really know much about biblical criticism. And so over the last, whatever, four decades, five decades, a lot of LDS leaders and a lot of material published by the church has promoted a very naive, ignorant view of what was going on in the early Christian church. And the scholars now inside the church in an effort to move the church forward, are essentially imposing that the top leadership now has to deal with that material. And what you're going to see tonight is that conflict laid out right in front of you. Right. And that's the other side of this, which I think is positive. There's positive and negative to this. And the positive part is that it appears that LDS scholars are engaging in a more faithful way, if I could use that expression with biblical scholarship outside of the LDS church. And according to biblical, biblical scholarship as it's turning out, let us let me back up and say what the general ideas in the LDS church is and elsewhere is that Jesus Christ came, he established a church, okay? That right off the bat is probably not reflected in the New Testament about Jesus establishing a church. But that's the idea. He establishes a church, calls 12 apostles, calls all these other people like 70 and Luke 10, 1, and all these other offices. And then Jesus dies. The apostles go out into the world. They get killed off in quick succession. They're not able to reconstitute the quorum of the 12. And so the great apostasy now, I was going to say dawns, but that's the wrong word. Uh, dawns upon the earth uh, as a sunset, as the opposite of a dawn. So the curtain comes down on the original church. And now the, uh, the ordinances get changed. Uh, the doctrine gets changed. Everything gets changed for the worse, and we enter into the dark ages. What scholarship is showing now is that isn't really what happened. Because what appears to have happened now, according to the best scholarship, is there is no original church that we can look back to and pinpoint, at least not through scholarship, maybe through faith, but not through scholarship and looking at the documents. Because as early as we can go in the New Testament church. There is not one church. There are a bunch of different churches with very different beliefs and mutually contradicting beliefs, which are fighting for supremacy amongst them. And a lot of times they're represented in different regions of the old world. Some up there in Rome, some down in Alexandria, where you have a, a focus on Gnosticism, some over in Jerusalem or Antioch, where the focus is more on the law of Moses and all of these things. So the further back you go, you don't come up with one church that then gets broken up 
what you end up with is a bunch of different churches. And that's at the inception point, at least as far as we can tell. So that right there is some of the scholarship that I think the people and the scholars in this new book are trying to deal with responsibly. That's what it is, responsibly. And I think that's to the good. Is that what yep. you were getting at, Bill? Yeah, the only other thing I would say is that if believers are watching this episode of Mormonism Live, you're often left to think like it's ambiguous, like there, there's just no evidence of exactly what happened, so I'm still going to choose to have faith. And, and what I think we're going to show you tonight is that the scholars, the faithful believing scholars within the LDS Church at the Maxwell Institute are going to disagree with you, and they're going to say that the evidence is compelling that we have to figure out a new way to think about these concepts and ideas to the point where you're going to feel the tension that these have with the old doctrine as you used to be taught it. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, a lot of these things will, uh, I'll be talking about them in advance of looking at the book. But one of the things that this book uh, remarkably talks about is that this whole idea of an apostasy seems to have been something that got started with B.H. Roberts. Now, when we look at their language, we'll find out they're actually saying something different, and we'll have some more to say about that. But when they said that, I thought, well, wait a second. What about the original, or earliest, I should say, first vision account, the one that was written in 1832 in Joseph Smith's own hand? He's actually sitting there putting pen to paper and writing the words out, and didn't he use the word apostasy or a variation of it? And I looked it up, and I think you've got it here to put on the screen, and darned if he didn't. Yeah, let me uh and I just want to I just want to note in this in this material they're claiming that Joseph Smith never used the word. Now this is the thing and I hadn't talked to you about this before. Okay, they actually don't quite say that. That was the implication I got from what they did say. But then I looked at it closer and I realized no, they're playing word games. What they're actually going to be saying is that Joseph Smith never used the phrase the Great Apostasy, capital G, capital A. That's actually what they mean. And that's true. But who cares? Why are you saying that if Joseph Smith did not use this expression, that he did not teach that that happened? You see, it's kind of a dodge that they're using here. It's kind of like when Elder, or I should say President Oaks, excuse me, when President Oaks says, well, the word apology doesn't appear in the scriptures, therefore we don't have to apologize. It's a dodge. It's a semantic game saying, well, if it doesn't say apologize, then we don't have to apologize. Well, excuse me. I think the idea is talked about in different places, many different places in the scriptures, even if the word apology itself is not used. Yeah. Apostasy. And I see a similar yes. thing going on here. Hey, can you read that bill, this 1832 account? You may just read the highlighted part on my page or... Well, I tell you what, this is where, uh, if I can, and I'll lead up to the highlighted part and let you take over. Okay. Uh, where he's talking about, this is before the First Vision account, and he's talking about the fact that he'd been, you know, uh, studying and attending and trying to figure things out on his own. And he says he was exceedingly distressed. For I become convicted of my sins, and by searching the scriptures, I found that mankind did not come unto the Lord. And you can just start right there, Bill. Yeah, it says, uh, they had apostatized from the true and living faith, and there was no society or denomination that built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded in the New Testament. 
Right. And we're not going to talk about the fact that this is different from a subsequent account where those words that Joseph Smith figured out by his own study suddenly appear in the, the mouth of Jesus. But <clears throat> the fact is, is that Joseph Smith in the 1832 account of the first vision, you can't get too much earlier in LDS history than this. He is going from the assumption and the doctrine that this is why this church has to be restored is because Christianity had apostatized from the true religion. It's the whole reason for God appearing to Joseph Smith for crying out loud, at least in subsequent versions of the first vision. Go ahead, Bill. It's the whole reason we have to have a restoration. It's the reason we were taught when you and I were young and in the church, we were taught you couldn't have live branches from dead trees. The tree is dead. The only way you can get a live branch is by God coming back down and starting all over again and restoring and that word means something, restoring the ancient church in the modern moment. Well, it means so much that the church has been at pains at many different times to distinguish a restoration from a reformation and say, no, we're not, re we're not a reformation. That's Martin Luther and stuff like that. They're just trying to tinker with things and make it better. This is a restoration, which means things have gotten so bad and out of hand and so lost that God has to come down and send angels to restore his church once again to the earth. Go ahead. No, that's that's it. I'm, I'm good on this, on the 1832 account. It clearly, okay. Joseph Smith, in his earliest uh, account, uh, is clear that there is no way that any of the, the truth is here. It, it essentially, we have to start over. Jesus, uh, there's no society or denomination built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded in the New Testament. It's all changed. Sounds like a pretty great apostasy to me. Yeah. Okay. Even if he doesn't say great apostasy, he's yeah. talking about the same great apostasy. Thing. Yeah. Yes. And then in the 1838 account, he doesn't use the word apostasy, but now Jesus has all sorts of things to say about how bad it is out there in the Christian world and why it is that he has to appear to Joseph Smith. Do you want to read that part? I think most of our audience could probably quote it from memory. This is the official version. This is when the actual vision takes place. He says, no sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak than I asked the personage who stood above me in the light, which of all the sects was right. For at the time, it had never entered into my heart that all were wrong, even though in the 1832, he says something a little different, right? And which I should join. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, and that those professors were all corrupt, and they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Right. And that sounds like a pretty great apostasy as well. Seems significant. Right. And of course, the people in who wrote this book and who are of this mindset and trying to change things and soften the great apostasy also have to soften the language in this account. They have to say, well, you know, it sounds like a great apostasy, but really it's kind of limited. It's like the global flood versus the limited flood. Now, it used to be the global apostasy. Now we're going to be start talking about the limited apostasy. It really wasn't that bad. I mean, what it makes the great apostasy so great anyway? Right. You know? It wasn't that bad. And then if we get to the 1842 account of the first vision, I just put this in here because this gives us the additional detail direct from deity that the reason this is happening. And actually, if Joseph Smith will hold true, then he will be the conduit through which God will restore 
everything. I don't know if you you found that one. I have it in my notes if you don't have it, Bill. What is the document? It's the 1842 account, the first vision. Excuse oh, me, I, I don't, uh, I don't the Whitworth letter. Yeah, it's just, it's not so long, but he talks about retiring to a secret place to call upon the Lord. And then it goes on and says, they told me that all religious denominations, oh, wait a second, there is that word all. Yeah, they told me that all religious denominations were believing in incorrect doctrines. Now, once again, see, it's doctrines. It's not just priesthood, baby. And that none of them was acknowledged of God as his church and kingdom. And here's the additional detail, Bill. And I was expressly commanded to go not after them, at the same time receiving a promise that the fullness of the gospel should at some future time be made known unto me. So there's where we get the idea that he's going to be the prophet of the restoration. And that promise is given to him from God in 1820. And indeed, that's exactly the way it turned out to be, at least according to LDS history. So we've talked about the apostasy in these early accounts. And the reason I'm focusing on this is because I'm trying to show the apostasy is part of Mormonism from its earliest days and from its earliest prophet and indeed from its first vision. So we go along there and ultimately the book, The Great Apostasy, gets written and published. James Talmadge is the author, as we all know, it's 1909. And this has become a standard feature of the church. Now, I do want to acknowledge that James Talmadge, when he wrote The Great Apostasy, was not doing a whole lot of original research. I mean, he is out in Utah and he's writing this book, but he is adopting largely the arguments of Protestant theologians and scholars over the years that they created to use against the Catholic Church and to show that the Catholic Church was no longer on the right track and was very much out of the way. So that's been acknowledged for a long time. It's not an excuse, though. In other words, just because James Talmadge did rely on other scholars, it doesn't suddenly make the teaching of the great apostasy in the LDS Church null and void. Because as we've seen, it's been there since the beginning and since Joseph Smith. Um, somebody had written about this book, uh, The Great Apostasy by Talmadge. The book is in many ways quite derivative of B.H. Roberts' 1893 Outlines of Ecclesiastical History. And that's why B.H. Roberts is sometimes given the credit for coming up with this term, The Great Apostasy. Both writers borrowed heavily from the writings of Protestant scholars who argue that Roman Catholicism had apostatized from true Christianity. By the way, if you get nothing else from tonight's episode, please remember that the verb form of apostasy is not apostatize. It is apostatize. Okay? That's one of those things. I think Mormons are about the only person who use the verb form of apostasy. And more than 50% of the time, they mispronounce it. So it's apostatize. I had to learn that early on as, a, um, as an apologist for the LDS church. But it is apostatized. And so that's what it says here that it had apostatized from true Christianity. Talmadge's book has been described as the most recognizable and noted work on the topic of Latter-day Saint views of the great apostasy. It continues to be published today by Deseret Book. So here's that message that's still being put out there about the great apostasy. And indeed, this book, The Great Apostasy, has been one of the few non-scriptural books that full-time LDS missionaries are encouraged to study. 
And I think that will vary from mission to mission. However, however, it is no longer part of the approved missionary library. But really, that doesn't make any difference because if you go to Talmadge's other seminal works, being Jesus the Christ, at the end, he's got a whole chapter about the apostasy where he recapitulates a lot of this stuff. If you go to his other book, The Articles of Faith, there's a whole chapter in there that recapitulates his teachings about the great apostasy. And when I say his teachings, those are the church's teachings. This is the correlated, the accepted doctrine of the LDS church. It's not some guy going off in a corner of the fourth floor of the Salt Lake Temple and writing a book that nobody knows about and self-publishing it. This is in all respects, and I think by any measurement, it has been established to be the doctrine of the LDS church. And as I said, the fundamental doctrine of the LDS church. Your and thoughts, Bill? Yeah, just to know, you just said it's no longer part of the approved missionary, uh, what's the wording they used? Uh, li library. Yeah, but, it, but that also indicates it used to be. This was one of the books that missionaries were given. There were four or five of them. Uh, Jesus the Christ, uh, you know, the great apostasy. apostasy. Um, uh, I don't know what the other ones were, but essentially the standard works and articles a, of faith. Yeah. And so you get a few things that you could take on your mission that you were allowed to read from without any question. This was correlated material. This was the doctrine yes. of the church. It had the stamp of approval of the top leadership and every missionary was encouraged to know this book from front to back. Um, and it's, it's not a small book. I said earlier, two to 300 pages It's 200 pages. There are several chapters and each chapter goes into significant detail and you'll notice you're pointing this out by them getting rid of this, not being part of the missionary library anymore. It's just a slow retreat. They're little by little walking away from these ideas. And in the book that we're going to talk about tonight that the Maxwell Institute uh, released, it becomes quite significant. Yes, it does. And so I, I was going to talk about the pamphlets that I got when I was an investigator. And one of them was devoted to the idea of the apostasy. Um, I looked at the pamphlets that are in use today. They still talk about the apostasy in very similar terms to the way I learned it. So this is what missionaries are teaching today and what investigators are learning from the missionaries today. I'm going to skip that because you came up with a better thing, I think, and you came up with a manual, a teacher's manual or a student manual that's in use today. And it quotes quite a bit from Jesus the Christ and from the great apostasy. And you had underlined a lot of relevant segments. This is the part of the show where we're showing and establishing what it is that the church has taught and indeed what the church continues to teach, at least out of one side of its mouth today. Do you have that, Bill? So Maven looks like she's got it here. Um, and I'm going to pull mine up on my screen just so I can see it a little closer. It might be easier, folks, if you make it full screen. Um, also, I'm going to say that I don't know that we want to spend time on every one of these, but we can. Um, my suggestion would be to the audience is to pause your video for a moment and just read all of the red underline. But there's two things that I noticed that stand out to me. One yeah. is that there are multiple instances where the uh, doctrine of the church imposes that Jesus Christ set up a church. And what these biblical scholars are going to tell you now, and they're going to waffle in the way they try to say it, but they're going to tell you like the, the story you grew up with is that when Jesus comes along and he calls his 12 disciples, he exits the Jewish faith and he starts a church and they meet every Sunday and he's got all the offices, he's got all the true doctrines, they're, you know, they're doing they're doing all the ordinances correctly. 
And uh, the church is literally a church. And what the biblical scholars are going to say, and we'll get to it, is that that's not the case anymore. They now recognize, along with the rest of the world on biblical criticism, that Jesus was always a Jew up until his death, and that his disciples in the first and second and maybe even the third generation were also Jews who participated as followers of a subgroup of the Jewish faith following this the teachings of this Jesus Christ. Um, the idea that they had a canon and scriptures that were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the reality of, of that is those four gospels were written quite late, and these scholars would agree with that. And as you pointed out earlier, RFM, from the very onset of Christianity, there were multiple groups teaching in various geographic locations, and that's supported by the fact that these manuscripts were in different locations. So nobody had Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those guys over there were using Mark. These guys over here were using Matthew. Those guys over there are using Luke. And John and comes along way the, And some were using the Gospel of Peter. Yes. Um, yes. And Gospel of Tom. You, you've, got, you've got the Apocrypha and some of the other uh, Gnostic Gospels. And so it's a real mess in terms of any sort of consistency. So the first thing is the idea that the Savior organized a church. You see it in the doctrinal, uh, doctrinal outline. Uh, letter A there, right where my cursor is in the left hand. Oh, you're not going to see it there. But the left hand side, just below the word where it says doctrinal outline. And it says it and multiple can, before times. You, and before you get to that, I just want to um, clarify what I think you're saying is that there was a portion which became originally, of course, the original Christians were Jewish, just like the original Christ was Jewish. But it ended up uh, proliferating throughout the Gentile world, mainly because of the missionary efforts of Paul. And then he was so successful and it was so appealing there that uh, in pretty short order, the Jewish disciples, they ended up sort of going into um, decline, I think. They didn't win that fight. The fight that in order to be a true Christian, you had to follow the law of Moses, that kind of thing. We read about some of that in the New Testament going on. But yes, definitely. So I think that uh, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish uh, component of Christianity ended up uh, winning the day and saving Christianity, which I think otherwise would have been a footnote in Jewish history if it had not been for Paul. And, and to note that because Jesus and his disciples are adhering to the Jewish faith within the faith as a subgroup, it would be like in a ward where the bishop presides but the uh, the deacon's president is claiming that he has restored the church and he's running things, but he stays inside the ward, essentially succumbing to the authority of the bishop. Jesus and the disciples weren't standing out front in the Jewish synagogue saying, we're the ones leading this thing. They were participating under the hierarchy of the Jewish faith within their whatever, whatever congregation or synagogue you want to call it. But they weren't the ones leading, nor were they challenging that they should lead. They were just trying to participate their own way of, way of doing things as following the teachings of Jesus, but within the Jewish faith. Right. So, and I, I don't want to uh, sift through all this and get yeah. to uh, out too much out in the weeds, but let's just leave it at that as a general overview and go ahead with what it is, the two things you think are important from this manual, the church yep. manual about the apostasy. So the one is that the Savior organized a church, and it just doesn't seem like he did. That doesn't make any sense. And the scholars from the Maxwell Institute 
sort of agree, although they're trying to kind of muddy the waters so that we can still believe in it. The second thing is all throughout this entire lesson manual, in the it's just a two-page. It's the doctrines of the gospel. Uh, this is the chapter on apostasy. And if you read all those red underlines, you could almost articulate those same exact concepts and ideas within the ongoing restoration. So for instance, on the right-hand two columns, halfway down, there is the dot there. Part of it's not underlined and part of it is, but it starts off saying the most important of the internal causes by which the apostasy of the primitive church was brought about may be thus summarized. Number one, the corrupting of the simple doctrines of the gospel of Christ by admixture with so-called philosophic systems. So I'll give one example. Elder Bednar taking free agency out of the church and inserting moral agency. Number two, unauthorized addition. By the way, tithing last time we covered also the changing of doctrine from surplus to being uh, 10% of your gross. Uh, number two, unauthorized additions to the prescribed rights of the church in the introduction of vital alterations in essential ordinances. So all you have to do is look at what they did a few years ago, taking, uh, taking, and again, over the last few decades too, taking the penalties out, um, making it so that a lot of the sexism in the temple is no longer present, in spite of the fact that Joseph Smith said that these things were given and to not be tampered with. Uh, so the church has definitely messed with the ordinances in ways that would mesh with the way this chapter of the doctrines of the gospel describes apostasy. And then number three, unauthorized changes in church organization and government. And the simplest one I can think of here is um, 70s used to be missionaries at the local ward and stake level. Then it becomes kind of a general authority position. We used to have elders quorums and high priests. Now we just have elders quorums. It, the church tampers whenever it needs to with the organization of the church as well. And there are changes that are numerous in that also. But if you, again, pause the screen, read all the red lines, you'll notice that that sounds very much like the same thing that's going on in an ongoing restoration. Right. And so one wonders now, because it has been observed by myself and by others that the church appears to be fulfilling the description that it used to give of the early Christian church. In other words, it seems that everything that the church has taught constituted apostasy from the true church in New Testament times is being replicated by the LDS church in modern times. And so once that idea gets out there, and the evidence behind it, some of which you brought up, and very well, I might add, starts becoming part of the common understanding of members of the church. And people are leaving the church over this issue. Some of them are becoming affiliated with other churches that claim to be a sort of a restoration of the early LDS church, right? So they're starting to see this. And they're starting to see that. And they also say the Book of Mormon predicts that the restored church will go into apostasy. So there's all these things that are going on. And the question is, if you're a leader of the church and you recognize that the things that your church, the LDS church used to say about the original church, which constituted apostasy there, when you realize that you're doing the same thing that the church used to point at as evidence of the apostasy, 
there's two things you can do. You can quit making all these changes or you can redefine apostasy. And it seems that that's what's going on. I'm sorry, Bill, I cut you off. No, 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 I'm doing that to you. So there's also a spot at the end of this uh, manual where it talks about they would combine all elements to please everybody. They've replaced the simple ways and program of Christ with spectacular rituals, colorful display, impressive pageantry. And I just want to note, I've seen these recently. I'm going to put this up on the screen. Um, this is These are these programs that the church is now doing to, to get kids involved. You know, again, color and pageantry. Here's one of them. The first ever music festival. Let's find uh, their colors here for, I mean, this is, this is now church programs. Whoop, I don't really want to play it. I was going to try to find, but they're all done with performances and colorful stages. Look at this here. This is an LDS first ever youth music festival. You and I What's grew up. What's the kid doing with a guitar? Yeah, they're not supposed to do that, right? So you and I. Hope it's I not up, electric. You and I grew up in uh, a church that we would have saw this as definitely not what we do. That's what the other guys down the street do. That's not what we yes. do. And then there was one more. Let me see. We if used to I make can. fun of the, the churches that did this kind of performance, that they have to try and be all entertainment-y in order to get their youth to attend and pay attention. We took it as a point of pride that the church was not interesting and that the church was not entertaining. And even Boy K. Packer said, my purpose is not to entertain you tonight. And he fulfilled on that promise, by the way. But that used to be a point of pride in the LDS church. And now look at that's the tabernacle. What are they doing? Is this not apostasy you see before you, my friend? Look at the color. Look at the pageantry. Look at how they are now making everything puffed up and, and trying to grab the attention of, of folks, but do it in a way that seems to contradict the very way in which they state they were going to do things. And, and showed that what this is seems to be a sign of apostasy by the way they describe it. Yes. And if I can distinguish something just for a second, I'm not saying, and I know you're not saying that this isn't a good thing. I think it's a good thing to try and be entertaining and try and attract people and have them interested in what it is you're doing and performing. I think that's all good. The point we're making is this is very different from the way the LDS church has been historically and what they're doing now fulfills the description they gave of apostasy with the New Testament church. Yeah, exactly. So right now, I want to go to a couple of statements by Joseph Smith, and I'm jumping ahead in the outline. But these are quotes from Joseph Smith about the restoration where he affirms that, yeah, this is exactly what it was he was talking about. And here's one where he says, now the purpose in himself, that's a capital H, so that's God. Now the purpose in God in the winding up scene of the last dispensation is that all things pertaining to that dispensation should be conducted precisely in accordance with the preceding dispensations. Can I say that again? All things pertaining to that dispensation, which means this dispensation, the last dispensation, should be conducted precisely in accordance with the preceding dispensations. That means it's the same, right? Okay, he, and he also says he, God, God set the temple ordinances to be the same forever and ever and set Adam to watch over them, to reveal them from heaven to man or to send angels to reveal them. So I'm quoting this to show that Joseph Smith's idea of the restoration is that, yeah, this is exactly the same as what was had in prior dispensations, including the New Testament. 
dispensation. He also says, Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 308, ordinances, so it applies to ordinances as well, ordinances instituted in the heavens before the foundation of the world in the priesthood for the salvation of men are not to be altered or changed. Are not to be altered or changed. All must be saved on the same principles. So the idea from Joseph Smith is that the gospel is the same in every dispensation, exactly the same. And he appeals to an egalitarian impulse here that this is what makes it fair, is that we all have to play by the same rules, no matter what dispensation we're in from the beginning of the world. Otherwise, it wouldn't be fair. And that makes a certain amount of sense. But the problem is, is that he is advocating for exact identicality between the gospel in different dispensations. Any thoughts from you, Bill? I just want to note Dan Hardy's quote, which is, this is a straw man. This is how people who don't have critical thinking skills, and no offense, Dan, this is how they do it. An evolving I'm sure he won't take any offense at that. <laughs> an evolving church with activities and curriculum is hardly apostasy. You would be onto something if the church came out and said Christ isn't the savior of the world anymore. That would be apostasy. But just note, by the way, Dan, that what you've set up as a standard Every other church that Joseph Smith was told not to join would not have apostatized by this standard either. They all still teach that Christ is the Savior too. Hence, Dan, this is this is a straw man that doesn't actually work. This is wood tools, and we're going to work with steel tools tonight. Wow, that's a good point I think you make, Bill. But can you put that back up there for a second, the quote from Dan Hardy? I'm going to try and be a little more gentle than you with our good brother Hardy. Yeah, where he says an evolving church with activities and curriculum is hardly apostasy. You see, Dan, I, I see that as a little bit of a straw man because we're not talking about activities in the church. We're not talking about having road shows and then not having road shows. Uh, we're not talking about curriculum in the church either. What we're talking about is the four things that I identified at the beginning and which has been constantly taught in this church since Joseph Smith have to remain the same, which is ordinances, doctrine, organization, and priesthood. So all four of those things, those are the four main things that we're talking about that have changed. And if you call them evolution, Joseph Smith would have called it apostasy because it has to be the same. If you call it evolution, James Talmadge would have called it apostasy because it has to be the same. And it was an evolution or a change. You may think it's a change up, which is evolution or a change down devolution, right? Or just a change. But any kind of change from the original gospel in the New Testament times and in prior dispensations equates to apostasy if it's a change of doctrine, if it's a change of ordinances, if it's a change of priesthood, or if it's a change of organization. So that's what I think uh, we're talking about here and why I don't think we're just talking about activities and curriculum. Yeah, but I appreciate I, your listening, Dan. I think that's great. And I just want to reiterate, by the standard he set, that the only definition of apostasy for him is for them to stop believing that Christ is the Savior. By that standard, there never was an apostasy at all. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so in, in contrast then to what Joseph Smith said and what James Talmadge said and what other leaders of the church will, that we'll be playing video clips of are even saying relatively currently, President Nelson now has changed things dramatically. In fact, 180 degrees. 
because what he says is over these many centuries, details associated with temple work. This is uh, having to do with some of the changes he's made in the temple endowment, which is an ordinance. Over these many centuries, details associated with temple work have been adjusted periodically, including language, methods of construction, communication, and record keeping. Prophets have taught, this is President Nelson, prophets have taught that there will be no end to such adjustments as directed by the Lord to his servants. Well, I, I expect prophets may have taught that. He doesn't actually cite to anything. I can tell you one prophet who didn't teach that and who taught exactly the opposite, and that was the prophet of the Restoration, Joseph Smith, as we have seen from the quotes. What do you think about that? Um, I, I'm, you're going to have to say the part again. I understand you're talking about Joseph Smith teaching it early on, but what's oh, the... Oh, it's okay, because President Nelson has changed everything. When I joined the church, when you joined the church, uh, and President Hinckley was the president, right? Everybody has said the same thing, as far as I can tell, which is that the restoration has been completed. The church has been by restored. Joseph Smith. Yeah. Yeah, the restoration has been completed. Joseph Smith is the prophet of the restoration. And Gordon B. Hinckley had said, yeah, we don't really need a whole lot of revelation anymore because everything's basically been revealed, restored. Yeah. Every now and then, maybe there's a problem or an issue we have to deal with, and then we go to the Lord. But we have the restoration. It has been accomplished. And that's the way it's been since Joseph Smith's death all the way up to President Nelson. But yeah. now it's changed. And now we're talking about the ongoing restoration. And that has become a theme of his. And others have picked up on it to the point where it's about the most oft-repeated phrase yeah. in General Conference in the years since President Nelson made it a hallmark of his presidency. You have to imagine if you're the top leadership of the church and you're sitting in councils and people from the church history department are coming to you, people from the curriculum department are coming to you, all the folks who are having faith crises, uh, that's getting back up to you. And what you're realizing and what you're also seeing, if you're if you're as a viewer of the program right now, you're also seeing them make dozens and dozens of changes. Um, and the changes are coming so fast and furious to try to catch up with a baseline amount of awareness of the youth and folks who are informed that the church has no uh, no other possibility but to change significantly. And they have to somehow soften that up because if you're a member of the church, you're seeing all those changes. There's something uncomfortable about that because as you point out, RFM, we were taught that the church was restored. Not that the restoration began, although Hardy points out uh, President Nelson saying the, the the restoration has just begun. And he says it as if we should just adopt that, but that's actually proving against his point, which is they're changing the rhetoric. Um, the, the fact that the restoration uh, used to be taught as completed and is now taught as ongoing is the way that the leadership is making members, making it palatable to members that the changes are coming so fast and furious. It's how they it's how they get the members to swallow it is by saying, "Oh, like I like forget we told you, it's done. The restoration has just begun. The restoration is ongoing. The ongoing restoration. It's a way of softening the rhetoric so that you won't be bothered by everything that's going on around you." Right. And I I sense a little bit of gaslighting in the technical sense of the term from President Nelson when he says prophets have taught 
that there will be no end to such adjustments as directed by the Lord to his servants. I'm not exactly sure what prophets he's talking about because he doesn't give a citation. All I know is it wasn't Joseph Smith, presumably the most important prophet of the restoration, though I don't know that President Nelson would agree with that anymore. And you hit a, an important point. President Hinckley was asked why there isn't more revelation in the church. And President Hinckley said, because essentially it's all done now. Like it's all been given. We don't need, we need to tinker a little here and tinker a little there, but we don't need to make any significant changes. The restoration has occurred. Yeah. And what I wanted to do in this next segment before we get to the book, by the way, everybody, the Salt Lake Tribune had an article about this, which is what prompted this show tonight. And so I've certainly read the article. I've marked it up. I've done some research on other things, but Bill Real, Bill Real is the one who actually bought the book, bought it on Kindle, correct, Bill? Yep. And has yep. actually read through, or at least scoured, skimmed, gone through the entire contents of this new book. And he has taken some segments out of it and highlighted them and made some slides, which we'll be talking about later in the show. But first off, I want to talk about some high points of what's been going on in the LDS church. This is the name of the new book, Ancient Christians, an Introduction for Latter-day Saints. Once again, BYU, Maxwell Institute there. And I think that's probably the back cover, but yeah, BYU. So this is from the LDS church. And I think that it's not gonna get published unless the LDS church says it's okay to publish it. That's my thought. So the first thing I think about is this, is that I'm not gonna pretend to hit everything, but I think one of the things that happened was had to do with the first edition of Mormon Doctrine by Bruce R. McConkie. And you remember that where he calls the great and abominable church from 1 Nephi chapter 13, the Catholic church. Now this isn't an idea that's new to Bruce R. McConkie. I'm sure his father-in-law, Joseph Fielding Smith, had said the same thing. Others had said the same thing. It's not like this is an original idea and he's going to put it down there. But it's certainly gained credibility and traction from being in Mormon doctrine. That the great and abominable church, which is talked about in 1 Nephi 13, which is, of course, borrowing the expression, I believe, from Revelation, is the Catholic church. And it's described in such a way as that. And I want to read if I can really quickly, what Bruce McConkie had to say about that in 1958, I believe it was with the first publication of Mormon Doctrine. Let me see here if I can find this. Let's see. There's the Great Apostasy, the book. Eh. Sorry, folks. Oh, here it is. Here's what he says in the first Edition. It is also to the Book of Mormon to which we turn for the plainest description of the Catholic Church as the great and abominable church. Boom. Right? Nephi saw this church, which is the most abominable above all other churches, in vision. He saw the devil, that he was the foundation of it, and also the murders, wealth, harlotry, persecutions, and evil desires that historically have been a part of this satanic organization. That's what he says about the Catholic Church in the first edition of Mormon Doctrine. Now, as we know, there was some controversy regarding the publication of that book and some changes were required to be made for the second edition. This is one of the biggest changes that was made or forced upon Elder McConkie to be made 
in the second edition. And so what was said about the Catholic Church in the first edition now gets changed to this in the second edition. The titles Church of the Devil and Great and Abominable Church are used to identify, not the Catholic Church anymore, see, are used to identify all churches or organizations. So we're not going to pinpoint the, the Catholic Church as being satanic. This applies to everybody. I guess that's supposed to be an improvement. <laughs> are used to identify all churches or organizations of whatever name or nature, whether political, philosophical, educational, economic, social, fraternal, civic, or religious, which are designed to take men on a course that leads away from God and his laws and thus from salvation in the kingdom of God. So I see this as a checkpoint in the history of the LDS church changing its teachings in such a way as to make them less offensive to other Christians and therefore hopefully not offend people and make them more amenable to hearing what the missionaries have to say when they come to their door. The problem is, is that this is the same LDS church that defined the apostasy as the early church changing its doctrine and teachings in order to get along better with the world and their systems to fit in better. So that's the problem. But this is one of the first things that I see along this type of path. And we even went now, further. We would we would claim the reason Joseph Smith had to uh, put out an inspired translation of the Bible was because corrupt men had removed parts and pieces of the scriptures. Um, again, if we go back to the narrative we've been taught, it's not just that they got lackadaisical. It's that they made uh, an intentional, malicious effort to change the church into what they wanted it to be, and they had left the pure doctrine by the wayside. Um, it goes way further than just saying this is accidental. This is an intentional, malicious effort on the part of the early church leaders to uh, get away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. And that was my reference to first Nephi chapter 13, where it goes for verses and verses and verses talking about the plain and precious parts that were taken away from the Bible. And this is the whole reason that the Book of Mormon has to be restored in the last days is to replace or restore those plain and precious truths, which had been taken out of the Bible by the great and abominable church. So, yes, it's all over the Book of Mormon. And by the way, the fact that it's all over the Book of Mormon kind of made me react a certain way to reading this new book. And the authors of this new book talk about, you know, restored church. This is another gambit they try. Restored church is not an expression that appears anywhere in the Doctrine and Covenants. So they're trying to say, well, if it doesn't say restored church, then really we're, we don't have to be committed to the idea of a restoration. If it doesn't say the great apostasy, if Joseph Smith doesn't say the great apostasy, then we don't have to be committed to the idea that there was a an apostasy that needed a restoration. So once again, they're playing the word games like Elder Oaks talking about apology. You know, so if if apology, if that word doesn't appear in the standard works, then we don't have to apologize. And if the great apostasy is something that Joseph Smith never said in those words, then there was no great apostasy, even though he says in his earliest first vision account that all the Christian churches had apostatized from the truth. So this is the kind of word games that I get tired of hearing. It's very apologetic in nature. It's designed to obfuscate the truth and not find out what the truth is. 
it, it's we've already seen this happening when they're trying to change the word translation to revelation. So every time that the word translation is used in Joseph Smith's uh, productions of scripture, you now have scholars and apologists beginning to shift the language over to a revelation, which is subjective, right? Translation has some concreteness to it. It can be sort of tested. Revelation can't be tested. Catalyst theories can't be tested. Um, and then now we have it so that apostasy doesn't mean apostasy and restoration doesn't mean restoration. And, and, and now I'm beginning to wonder why in the hell we even need Mormonism. That's the danger of this. It renders Mormonism moot. It makes it unnecessary. It makes it superfluous. Yeah. So that's the, the fire that they're playing with in order to, number one, try and be more true to the scholarship. And I think that's good. And number two, trying to give the current leadership, which I think is also a point of this book, more freedom to make changes, which some of the authors of these articles would like to see, including greater empowerment of women in the church, which I think is good. I think that this is the fire they're playing with, is that in order to push this narrative, which the church seems to be adopting and running with, they're making Mormonism obsolete. Yeah, totally. So we've got uh, 1958 with uh, the first edition of Mormon doctrine and the change about Catholic Church because we don't want to offend the Catholics. Then we come up to the 1980s where a couple of changes are made, one of which is in the title of the Book of Mormon. And we get added another testament of Jesus Christ, which is actually now part of the title of the Book of Mormon. The idea being we want to make sure everybody knows this is Christian stuff. So we're going to change the title that presumably was given to it by Moroni a while back. Sorry, Moroni, we're going to improve on your title. And then also in the 1980s, they changed the logo of the church to make bigger the name of Jesus Christ. In comparison with the other words in the title of the, the church's name, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Then in 1990, something very significant happens, which has to do with the temple endowment. And they had problems offending people, I think, with the depiction of the Protestant minister in the temple endowment, who is a hireling of Satan. He appears with Satan, Satan's like either beside him or behind him and encouraging him along because he's teaching what Satan is telling him to teach. That got taken out as well. The entire character, and it was a significant part. It wasn't just a small part. So they take out the entire character and all of these steps along the way appear to be to try and make Mormonism more acceptable to the non-Mormon world. In other words, apostasy. <laughs> and so now I think what we're seeing is the, uh, the end result of that, or at least getting closer to the end result of it. By the way, I also wanted to mention in 2005, the Neil A. Maxwell Institute put out another book that was very similar to this book. It was a collection of essays. It was Soft Peddling the Apostasy, and it was called Early Christians in Disarray. Do you remember that book, Bill? No, I wasn't familiar with that one at all. Yeah, I had actually read that when it came out. I thought it was interesting, but I also thought, you know, this is very different from what it is that we've been taught or that I've been taught for many decades in the church. So this was edited by Noel B. Reynolds. 
came out in January of 2005. And here's the description of the book as it's given on the website. By the way, I'm not going to read the entire description. I just want to read two lines from it. It's not that long a description. But it says that LDS scholars today conclude increasingly that the root causes of the apostasy were the abandonment or breaking of sacred covenants by the Christians themselves. That's what the apostasy is in this book from 2005. So the other thing was that the authors identify several common myths and misconceptions that Latter-day Saints have about the apostasy. And I looked at these two lines and I thought, you know, that's really rich because the first sentence in the book's description blames the members of the New Testament church for causing the great apostasy because they broke those sacred covenants, right? And then they go on to blame the current members of the LDS church for misunderstanding the great apostasy. The leaders have nothing to do with the great apostasy in the early Christian church, and they have nothing to do with the understanding that members have, which this book, the 2005 book, Early Christians in Disarray, say the, the apostasy really was. It's all on the members. Somehow you and I and millions of other members of the church got this wrongheaded idea about what the apostasy really was, that it was a change in the ordinances and the doctrines and the offices and the priesthood. That's we, we all somehow came to that wrong conclusion together without any input from the leaders of the church. Yeah, and, and if they're going to play the game where when they say some members, and that happens in this new book, um, when they say some members have misunderstood or some members have confused, if they're, if they're playing the word game of including leaders in that, that's really deceptive. That's really, it really is a form of gaslighting. And what it shows is that the leadership cannot tolerate. Again, you're not allowed to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. And so the only way these scholars can get away with it is to lump the leaders in with the members and word it as if they're blaming the members. But if you ask them, I'm sure they would go, yeah, leaders have done that too, but they're part of those some members. But that's that's deceptive. It's not fair. And it causes all of us to feel like our reality is messed up because now we're sensing that it must have been our fault. And yet I'm, I go like, I've been in so many lessons where the manuals, um, where the materials that the teachers had from the church gave them this dialogue that I walked away with these beliefs. Right. It's so ridiculous to think that we all came to this wrong conclusion on our own and we weren't taught it by the leaders of the church. Many of the quotes we've already talked about, some more of which we'll have in a second. But I do want to add this, okay, is that in this book, the 2005 book, so that's what, 17 to 18 years ago, it's now uh, February 1st, 2023, as we are recording this, and this came out in January of 2005. So yeah, 18 years ago. Myth one, there's three myths that they seek to dispel. Myth one, the apostasy happened because of outside persecution. That sounds different than what James Talmadge was saying, doesn't it? Yeah. He said that was one of the causes was the outside persecution. Myth number two, the apostasy was caused by the Hellenization of Christianity 
or the incorporation of Greek philosophy and culture into the teachings of the early church. That's what I heard because the church taught it. But in this book, they say this actually happened a century too late to be a causal explanation. Okay. Myth number three, the Roman Catholic Church specifically is the great and abominable church spoken of in Nephi's vision. That's what they claim to be a myth. It is not, even though it seems like it's pretty well described in the vision as something that uh, an early 19th century author would have associated with the Catholic Church. So that's 2005. Now, seven years later in 2012, BYU has a big conference. And by a conference, I don't mean a general conference, I mean a scholarly conference where they get all these scholars together to research and present papers and et cetera. And it was a conference on the apostasy. And a lot of these ideas were circulating there at this conference as well. I think the proceedings were probably published. And the conference was called Exploring Mormon Conceptions of the Apostasy. So I'm not going to read the one paragraph blurb. It's kind of uh, scholarly lingo. And basically what it's saying is, yeah, we've been getting it wrong in a number of ways for quite a long time in the LDS church. And now we need to re revise our conceptions of what the apostasy really is. So if we can now go to a couple of video clips, I'm sure you've been dying to see some video clips. We're going to skip the one by Elder Eyring because quite a few years ago, Elder Eyring uh, went on and on in an unscripted and impromptu way talking about how decisions are made in the church and how he had thought that, you know, you got together and the prophet received revelation and he told us what the revelation was. And he was shocked and somewhat dismayed originally to see that's not what happened, but actually people just talked about things until everybody sort of came to an agreement about it. And that is what constituted revelation. But by the end, of course, of telling the story, he's completely accepted this as being the true meaning of revelation and he's weeping about it and how wonderful it is that has gotten a lot of play i tell you what what time is it now um yeah we're gonna have to skip that one because he goes on and on somewhat but this i haven't seen it rfm but i'm gonna bet you have it for, well let's go, ahead and, let's go ahead and do cries. it because the whole idea here no, is no, what no, he's no, describing i've seen i've seen it i just know he cries in every video and i was just trying to win an easy hundred bucks oh let's go ahead let's go and watch it give my voice a break because what he's describing to my shock is churches, this church, the LDS church, making decisions by talking about things, arguing, discussing, whatever you want to call it, debating issues, and then coming to a consensus, which is what we used to point at the Catholic church and make fun of them for making their decisions by counsel and consensus. Instead of just having a prophet of God who can go to God and ask God what the answer is, and God gives it to him and comes back, gives it to everybody. That's the big selling point of the LDS church, that we have a prophet who receives revelation from God, and then we find out, courtesy of Elder Eyring, that no, that's not the way it happens at all, and in fact, it happens by council, just the way it happened back in the, the third and fourth century with the Catholic church. Do we have that clip? Everybody get your hankies out. You're going to need them by the end. But I would just say this. The way to look at Harvard and its effect, at least personally, is with this story. When I first came as the president of Ricks College, 
I attended my first meeting that I'd ever been in watching the general authorities of the church, the first presidency and others, running a meeting. I had been studying for the 10 years I was a professor at Stanford how you make decisions in meetings, in groups. So I got a chance. Here's my chance to see the way the Lord's servants do it, of which I now am one. But my first, I, I looked at it with my Harvard, Stanford eyes. And I thought, this is the strangest conversation I've, I mean, here are the prophets of God and they're disagreeing in an openness that I had never seen in business. In business, you're, you're careful when you're with the bosses, you know. Here they were just, and I, I watched this process of them disagreeing and I thought, good heavens. You know, I thought it, 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 revelation would come to them all and, uh, and they'd all see things the same way in some sort of, you know, and it was more open than anything I had ever seen in all the groups I'd ever studied in business. I was just dumbfounded. But then after a while, the conversation cycled around and they began to agree. And I saw the most incredible thing, that here are these very strong, very bright people all with different opinions, suddenly the opinions began to just line up and I thought, I've seen a miracle. I've seen unity come out of this wonderful open kind of exchange that I'd never seen in all my studies of government or business or anywhere else. And so I thought, oh, what a miracle. And then it was President Harold B. Lee was chairing the meeting. Uh, I think, he, anyway, it was, a, it was a Board of Education meeting. and. Uh, I thought now he's going to announce the decision because I've seen this miracle. And he said, wait a minute, I think, I think we'll bring this matter up again some other time. I sense there is someone in the room who is not yet settled. And they went on to the next item and I thought, that is strange. And then I watched somebody, one of the brethren, one of the, I think one of the 12, walk past President Lee and say, thank you. <laughs> There's something I didn't have a chance to say. So I want you to know, the main thing you do about Harvard and Stanford, and I love that, I hope this doesn't offend my wonderful friends, forget it. Uh, we're in another kind of thing here. Uh, uh, this is what it claims to be. This is the true church of Jesus Christ. Revelation is real, even in what you call the business kinds of settings. And uh, a great man whom I love and will always love, President Harold B. Lee, uh, taught me a great lesson that says, no, uh, we can be open, we can be direct, we can, we can talk about differences in a way that you can't anywhere else because we're all just looking for the truth. We're not trying to win. We're not trying to make our argument dominate. We just want to find what's right. And then a man sensitive enough to sense, without anybody saying anything, that somebody in the room was not settled. <laughs> and uh, again, there's a, there's, a kind of, uh, there's a kind of process of openness and yet coming together and having confidence that you know what the Lord wants, not what we want, that is, uh, I loved Harvard, I loved Stanford, had a great time there, my wife is here. We spent the first 10 years of our married life. I was a professor at Stanford, thought I'd stay there forever, and had tenure, and how happy we were, and then went to Rexburg, Idaho from there, uh, and uh, then came down here and found out that there was a kind of uh, 
making decisions and working together in groups that I have never seen anywhere else in the world. Except so, okay, okay. So that has to be juxtaposed, first off, with Hubie Brown's apostolic charge, right? Hubie Brown said he was surprised because when he stated, he stated that when he received a charge and was called as an apostle, it was different from Oliver Cowdery's original charge. And I think that's what he was expecting. Here's what the apostolic charge is, that every one of the folks who enter the top uh, 15, when they enter the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, this is what they, they promise, to always be willing to subjugate his own thoughts and accept the majority opinion, not only to vote for it, but to act as though it were his own original opinion after he has been approved by the majority of, after it has been approved by the majority of the Council of the Twelve and the First Presidency. In other words, RFM, Elder Eyring could be lying through his teeth, but the brethren have to pretend what he says is true anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, somebody great... said, and somebody said groupthink is now revelation, and you nailed it. But not even... Right. I'm... I was going to say, not even necessarily groupthink. It may be disagreement, but when you leave the room, you have to pretend you agreed. That's the agreement you make. Yes. Okay, sorry, yes. go ahead. No, thank you for adding that. Uh, the shock value of this came from the juxtaposition of what it is that I had always thought the church taught. I mean, let's just take reality out of it for a second, okay? And let's just talk about the church teaches. God gives his revelation to his prophet. That's why we have a prophet at the head of the church, right? That's what happens. And now he comes, Elder Irene comes forward and says, he basically indicates, I think, strongly that's what he expected to have happen. He expected revelation. He, yes. And so now that's not what happens. Instead, it's discussion, debate, and finally agreement. And that now becomes the new definition of revelation for Elder Irene and what he's telling the audience. It's a huge tipping the hand moment because we understand now that when they talk about revelation, they're not talking about any kind of a direct communication from God. They're talking about agreement amongst the top leadership, which is its own revelation from God. Maven. Hello. Oops, sorry, Maven. I, I muted oh. you there. Oh, okay. Well, I, I was muted myself too, I think. So, uh, yeah. So I remember on my mission, there was a man who's very, still very dear to me, a dyed in the wool Italian, you know, Philadelphia Catholic boy, just like, yeah, um, and, and still is. And he explained to me the process. Of course, this was years ago, but he was explaining to me the process of selecting a new pope. And the what I remember, and the Catholics in the uh, chat will have to correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what I remember of it, was that basically there's a bunch of men in a room and they don't leave until they agree on who it is. And, and then there's something about the smoke that they they light a certain kind of smoke or whatever. And that the white smoke. Lets, yeah, that lets everybody know that they've picked it. So, yeah. And I remember thinking at the time just how ridiculous that sounded to me. And I absolutely saw that as um, a mortal man kind of a thing that they just, you know, <laughs> they're all stuck there until they agree. Yeah. It's apostasy. I, yeah. And I just remember feeling so smug and self-assured about, you know, 
how we do things, that it's revelation, it's from God, that it's it's not a committee, you know, where like nobody can, nobody leaves <laughs> until we all agree. I just felt so superior about it. And so it's mm -hmm. just astonishing to me uh, that this could be said. Anyway, that's that's it. Why in a why in the one and true living church, the only true and living church with which the Lord is well pleased, the true and living church, which is led by prophets, seers, and revelators, the true and living church that is led by a living God who speaks to his living prophet, uh, who from, from God's lips to President Nelson's ears, right? Why do we need surveys, pilot programs, and heated discussions and apostolic charges? Why? Why? <laughs> That's an excellent rhetorical question. I think the answer is contained in the question itself. Good job, Mr. Real. You've got quite a career in front of you as a solicitor. Uh, you expect revelation when you're called into the 12. You expect He expected revelation. He has to learn that's not the way God's church works. It works through people sharing their opinions and weighing each other to siding with, the, with one of the opinions. And then even if they can't come to an agreement, as long as there's a majority, they all pretend to agree anyway. Right. He gets to go behind the curtain. He finds out how the the sausage is made. And then in an impromptu moment where he's out there in front of the cameras, he spills the beans. Yeah. God never comes in the room because he could no. just tell he could just tell Harold. B. Was it Harold B. Lee? That was his favorite. He said, yes. Yeah. He could just tell Harold B. Lee. God could just tell Harold B. Lee and Harold B. Lee could look around the room and go, God has just told me. This is what we're going to do. And the comp the discussion's over. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently that's not the way it really works. It doesn't. In the merry old land of Oz. So I've got one more clip. There's actually other clips. We're going to cut those out because we actually need to get to the book and the slide and the fact you actually read the book, Bill, for which I'm eternally grateful. <laughs> uh, but I do want to play the one clip from President Nelson, right? Mr. Ongoing Restoration. And yet, while he's talking ongoing res restoration and getting everybody else to repeat the same expression, he's still in general conference, although this is before his presidency. So that is perhaps a distinction that needs to be made. This is an October of 2006 general conference in his talk, The Gathering of Scattered Israel. He gives us a very uh, traditional teaching about what the great apostasy was. He even uses the expression, the great apostasy. Do we have that ready, Maven? Prior to his crucifixion, the Lord Jesus Christ had established his church. It included apostles, prophets, 70s, teachers, and so forth. And the master sent his disciples into the world to preach his gospel. After a time, the church, as established by the Lord, fell into spiritual decay. His teachings were altered. His ordinances were changed. Teachings and ordinances. The great apostasy came as had been foretold by Paul, who knew that the Lord would not come again except there come a falling away first. This great apostasy followed the pattern that had ended each previous dispensation. He really is a riveting speaker, don't you think, Bill? Uh, the restoration is ongoing, It, uh, but he also acknowledges that there was a great apostasy, and it was great. 
It was a great. Yeah, it was apology. fantastic. Everybody was invited, but the, the deal was that's 2006. Okay. So that's 17, between 16 and 17 years ago before he becomes president and he feels unleashed to use the expression of his wife or his second wife, Wendy Watson. Maven, do you have something you want yeah, to add? Yeah, I, I just wanted actually real quick to go back to the all every, everybody agreeing thing. Um, what's that quote when two people agree on everything, one of them is unnecessary? I just I just thought of that and I, I feel like it's true. So when what I think even more so when you've got fifteen people that agree on everything, fourteen and, and of if, them are unnecessary. And if a majority is required to make everybody look as though they agree, then sure as hell out of the twelve, five of them are unnecessary. There you go. That's really an excellent point. And how much virtue signaling is going on in these meetings to be the first to agree with the Top dog. <laughs> it's just a question I have. It's how policies get put in place. They get removed three and a half years later. Kazing. Bill Real wins the internet. Good job. I love it. Okay. So actually there is another, another one because we haven't really heard enough from Elder Oaks tonight. And I just want to play this clip or ask um, Maven to, this is from 1995 general conference. But the reason for this clip is because he uses the expression, great apostasy as well, but he applies it to doctrine, and specifically the doctrine of the Godhead. The Bible declares that man was created in the image of God, and it describes three separate members of the Godhead manifested at the baptism of Jesus. In contrast, Many Christians reject the idea of a tangible personal God and a Godhead of three separate beings. They believe that God is a spirit and that the Godhead is only one God. In our view, these concepts are evidence of the falling away we call the great apostasy. So there's the great apostasy. You know, I think that Elder Oaks and Elder Nelson may have gone to the same public speaking school. Yeah, and I was just making a note. That suit didn't seem to fit him very well. He must be a junior apostle at the time or something. Really? Oh, my gosh. I didn't even notice that. I was it noticing was... it was his head and how one thing I appreciate about, appreciated about Elder Oaks is that he makes me feel virile. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Okay. So those are some quotes that go into this discussion. And now, now, finally, can I turn it over to you, Mr. Real, to talk about What's in this book that's just come out from BYU, Neil A. Maxwell Institute? This, so this book is about uh, 700 pages, it, but it reads really easy. There's not a lot of words um, on a page. You can actually go through it pretty quickly. I'm not going to say I read everything, but I did skim through the entire thing, and I did read the chapters I thought most pertinent to the topic we were talking about tonight. So I've got two slides to show. Each slide has various quotes, the red lines separate. So anything that's between red lines was together on the same page. Anything separated is disconnected from the other quotes that I'm showing. They're all just bits and pieces copied and pasted over. So first off, I noticed a new Latter-day Saint approach. You can't have a new one unless you're doing something different than the old one. 
So a new Latter-day Saint approach to ancient Christians. Now I'll read some of these highlighted parts. First, what they're saying is, what does a careful reading of our Latter-day Saint teachings regarding the restoration mean for this volume? First, it means that we cannot assume that something found in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints today necessarily existed in the ancient church. So there will be things in modern-day Mormonism that we still say the church is true, but they're not found anywhere else in ancient Christianity. I just felt the ground shift under my feet. Did you feel anything, Bill? Yeah, that seems pretty significant, doesn't it? The next one, we cannot assume that today's church is a template for what the first century church must have been or vice versa. In other words, the first the first generation of Christians are going, we should expect them to look entirely different than our modern church looks. Um, says our authors acknowledge the differences between ancient Christians and Latter-day Saints without automatically assuming such differences to be evidence of apostasy. In other words, you can, it used to be the differences were the apostasy, and now the differences cannot necessarily mean apostasy. Right. And the um, sameness was evidence of authenticity of this LDS church. Yep. Our authors encounter these differences. They work to explain how and why ancient Christians develop beliefs and practices that contrast with our own. Now, the middle section is, I believe, separate. I don't think that blue at the left is connected to the blue in the top middle. So working toward understanding them from a position of respect and even holy envy, talking about how we should appreciate and respect and even have holy envy toward, towards the early Christian church. And I'm sure that footnote goes to Kirster Stendhal. So they say, second, we believe that the truth regarding the power and purposes of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not dependent on proving that other Christian churches are deficient, not guided by God, or worse. In other words, the church is beginning to walk away from any rhetoric that other churches are doing it wrong or are bad. Uh, in fact, the message of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints regarding other Christian churches is quite the opposite. Now, here they're gaslighting because they're they're choosing to ignore the first uh, the 1832 First Vision account. They're choosing to ignore the history of the church. They're choosing to ignore the 1838 account. They're choosing and the other from Joseph Smith that we've given tonight. Yeah, they're not and, going to deal with those at least apparently not in this. Instead, they're going to cherry pick a few other things that will support their theory. Because it seems that at least in this regard, they have a thesis that they are going to argue for. And I don't know that they're going to deal effectively or responsibly with all the counter evidence to their thesis. Yep. So they're going to quote that Joseph Smith warned, quote, the character of the old churches have always been slandered by all apostates since the world began. So now it's the apostates fault for speaking ill of the old churches disregarding Joseph Smith in that 1832, 1838 first vision, absolutely saying that God himself was uh, dismissive of those churches and their doctrines and their creeds. I think dismissive is a nice word for it, Bill. Uh, in response to similar slander, the prophet insisted the old Catholic church traditions are worth more than all you have said. Now, again, I agree. I'm, I don't know these two quotes. These were new to me. I'm sure Joseph Smith said them. When tomorrow morning, when I put this show up in podcast form, I will look those two quotes up and see what context they're in. They're new to me. I'm sure Joseph Smith said them, but just because he says one thing doesn't mean you get to claim that that's the only thing the church has ever taught. 
According to President Brigham Young, Latter-day Saints should be learning and gathering truths about the gospel we preach from other churches. Certainly, this practice should also include gathering truths from ancient Christians. This book, therefore, is an act of devotion. This book is a new Latter-day Saint approach to ancient Christianity. Uh, it says here, for the current position of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on anti-Catholicism, see notes 25 and 26, which self-admits that the Church had a different position before its current position. So just to give you a little bit of weight that Bruce R. McConkie, yes, he did it, and yes, he got in some trouble for doing it in the first edition of Mormon Doctrine, but that idea was floating around more than just in his head. Uh, witness to preaching. The earliest surviving description of a Christian worship service comes from Justin Martyr. He died in AD, just before AD 167, a Palestinian Christian who lived not more than 100 years after Jesus preached in Nazareth. They're, they're essentially nodding their head that there was no early Christian church and that the earliest record we have of a church service being done solely as Christianity was sometime around 167 AD. They say what was actually canonized. It is clear that in the second and third centuries, the idea of canonical teachings developed before an actual list of books was compiled. It's In other words, they're saying it wasn't until the second and third century that there would have been a concept in Christianity of a, of a canon kept together, that whether these books were bound together or not, they would have been used together collectively to teach the early Christians. And they're acknowledging that before the second and third centuries, it would have been scattered and different and messy, depending on where you were at geographically. For instance, Mark's written first, Matthew and Luke are written right about the same time, but not in the same place because they seem to be ignorant of each other. And that tells you that whoever was using those books early on likely were in places where they weren't using the other one. Oh, right. Yep. Right. And then uh, let me get out of this. And Before you go to that, we won't go into Marcion, and he's apparently being the first person to come up with an idea of a list of books that he considered canonical, which, if I recall correctly, were uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, the, Gospel, uh, the Epistles of Paul, and none of the Old Testament. That was pretty much his, his list of authoritative books. And I think scholars attribute to Marcion the idea of having a list of authoritative books. And then it was after that, that eventually they came up with different lists of New Testament books. And if memory serves, it was the year 367 AD or CE, in which the first list was compiled that had all 27 books of our current New Testament and no others. So it was a long time coming. I did a little research while you were talking there, Bill, about the statement by Joseph Smith, the old Catholic church traditions are worth more than all you have said. This appears to come from his last sermon, the Sermon at the Grove. And there was a brief piece written on this by Jay Stapley. And that's an initial Jay Stapley, September 19th, 2007, published it by common consent. And I'm just going to mention that this last paragraph, it's very brief, three paragraphs. Joseph had been pejoratively compared to the Pope for years. He was the sole director of his church. He introduced rituals and practices that offended antebellum Protestant sensibilities. After making his supportive comment of Catholicism, 
Joseph went on to argue that all Protestants were essentially Catholic apostates. Joseph, now remember the situation that Joseph is in, where he's been compared to the Pope, and now he's got all these people who are members of his church, but they're apostatizing and criticizing him and calling him a fallen prophet. It's a very dynamic and volatile situation in which Joseph finds himself. But this author then says, Joseph then taught that God never recognizes apostates and that any man who will betray the Catholics will betray you. Perhaps at this moment of Joseph's betrayal, he felt to sympathize with what he recognized as the previous dispensation's heir, or in other words, Catholicism. So I don't think that this statement taken out of context probably effectively and accurately represents Joseph's misbeliefs about the Catholic Church or the apostasy. I don't think that word means what you think it does. Yeah. No, I don't think so either. Okay, so then, and by the way, something that came up as you were talking maybe about halfway through our conversation here tonight, this idea of what we were taught about how the early Christian church apostatized, and thank you for the correction on the pronunciation. I needed that because I definitely have been doing it wrong forever. If you just look at the LDS church from its inception in 1830, and see how quickly it gets off track or changes or switches paths, does the lectures on faith, then takes them back out of the scriptures. Like the way in which it has operated, how many breakoff groups there have been, how many people who have tried to come to authority in the church. And then you recognize, like, was that the apostates who did that? Or was it everybody from inside the church? And it becomes clear that people are only apostates after the fact. And that much mm. of the modern church in 200 years, if you look at how much it's shifted and changed and had splinter groups, it would be probably a pretty good model for assuming how the early Christian church would have shifted and changed and developed splinter groups. And if something seems uh, logical or rational in how this modern restoration has done those things, it would probably seem feasible to add, you know, to look back and with hindsight and to see those same things happening in the early Christian church rather than the motives that are attributed by the manual. Yeah, that's a really good point, Bill. I appreciate you're making that before you go to the next slide or while you're going to the next slide, can yeah. I just go to the article that was in the Salt Lake Tribune Please. earlier this week or last week, late last week, uh, that was announcing this book. And by the way, the title of that article is what Latter-day Saints get wrong about the great apostasy. It's always our fault, Bill. It's always the guys and the gals and the pews who are screwing things up. And the leaders are just like pulling their hair out going, what is wrong with these members? Why are they getting all our teachings so different from what it is that we're actually saying? <laughs> but here's the part in the article about apostasy. Um, this is from the article. It started with the concept of the Dark Ages, <clears throat> excuse me, developed in the 1400s with European humanists, Combs says. Early Protestant reformers then adopted this notion in their critique of the Catholic Church. They argued that the church had fallen into darkness, that there was this great apostasy. But Mormonism's founder, Joseph Smith, never used that term. Some point to a later Latter-day Saint general authority, B.H. Roberts is the one who first promoted the apostasy narrative. Now that is direct quote from this article and talking with one of the um, editors, Combs, about the apostasy and Mormonism 
and who it was who first came up with it. That's when I was shocked to say, excuse me, what about the 1832 First Vision account? That's a long time before B.H. Roberts. So what apparently he really means is that Joseph Smith didn't use the actual exact phrase great apostasy. But then this parenthetical comment in the article is what throws me where it says some point to a later Latter-day Saint general authority. B.H. Roberts is the one who first promoted the apostasy narrative. Excuse me. No, he wasn't. Even if he's the first general authority who said the great apostasy, capital G, capital A, which may be where GAs come from. It was Joseph Smith in 1832, if not earlier, who said there had been a complete apostasy of Christianity from the truth. And that's why the restoration was needed. Yeah, there's such a weird choosing of words to try to confuse the member into thinking of things a certain way, when in reality, something else is going on. Yes, and I don't like it, Mr. Real. No. All right, so this second one, let me put this one up. Um, all right, so uh, these are, again... Each section separated by red lines is its own thing. Why it matters. As Latter-day Saints, we believe in the same organization that existed in the primitive church. Article of Faith, 1-6. Which, by the way, this week you and I were chatting. One of the things Joseph Smith clearly got wrong, and I, I know there's apologetics around it, but any rational thinker, I think, arrives at this uh, conclusion, which is that Joseph used uh, evangelists completely wrong. That evangelists, uh, as understood in... Uh, New Testament times would have been seen as a missionary. And so if G if Joseph Smith would have associated evangelists with missionary, he would have gotten it, but he seems to want to associate it with the Old Testament office of patriarch. And there seems to be no good connection there between those two titles. Oh, you're muted. Et tu, Brute. So this is a very important point that you make here because it is so important to Joseph Smith to have his church reflect exactly the New Testament church, that he's willing to take evangelist from the New Testament and completely change it to a patriarch in the LDS church. They have nothing to do with each other. It seems an obvious move on his part to make his church exactly reflect the New Testament church. That's what's so important to him, because this is a restoration of what was had anciently. It completely subverts the entire thesis of this new book and this new movement, which seems to be afoot in the LDS church. And whether they're thinking of evangelists or the other offices in the church, it's sufficient to recognize that they agree with us. Look at this. Uh, studying the development of church offices in early Christianity helps us understand the ways in which the restored church— which really doesn't now have to restore anything. The restored church today both reflects and diverges from early Christian churches. It also highlights the critical role of women. There was an entire chapter in this book devoted to trying to subtly, subversively nudge the brethren to recognize that if they're really going to restore the ancient church, they're going to have to add female priesthood because they go through an entire chapter, probably, I don't know, 70 to 100 pages worth of pointing out numerous examples of 
uh, females holding priesthood power and priesthood offices in the early Christian church, even as early as in the days of Paul, which the church would see as one having authority. Um, and, and they basically say, like, it shouldn't bother us that there aren't women priesthood yet, because that's the magic of an ongoing restoration is we could we can add it uh, at any point. And so you can feel them nudging the brethren to make that shift. Um, right. And so just a couple of points. I'm please, sorry. No, um, a couple of points is that um, what they're saying now is it doesn't have to be an exact replica of the New Testament church. There are going to be things that are different and there are also going to be things that are the same. So what they're doing now is they're changing the playing field. And what they're saying is anytime that the LDS church matches the New Testament, it's proof that the LDS church is true. But anytime the LDS church does not match the New Testament is not evidence that the LDS church is false. And wouldn't it also be true that every other Christian church, including other high demand fundamentalist religions, such as Jehovah's Witnesses or Seventh-day Adventists, would also be able to say that they have some things that are found in the early Christian church and some things that are not? That's the beauty of this definition. By the way, excellent point, Bill. That's the beauty of this definition, which is everybody wins. Everybody can fit this definition because they got some things that match and some things that don't, but that's okay because they are true. Or this argument proves that every Christian church is just as true as the LDS church. How's I that? Bet, I bet Dan Hardy likes that one too. All right. Well, Latter-day maybe he does. Saints. Oh, the other thing about women, I'm so yes. sorry. Please, no, this please. Is, this, is, this is all great. And I know this lady, do you have the part at the end where she says she wants the leaders to pray about this to God? Uh, if you, if um, I can certainly pull it up. No, at the very end, she talks about how she, she thinks the leaders need to pray about God so they can get more in line with the New Testament church and how they promoted women in positions of authority. The problem is that even though I think this is all great, and I, I wish her more luck than Kate Kelly had when she made a similar request of church leaders. Um, the problem is, is that the entire argument that's being made by this book undercuts this particular argument. Because if you're saying that the restoration is, a, is indeed a restoration of everything that was had in the early Christian church, then the fact that in the New Testament church, you have women in positions of power, that should be part of the restoration. Yes. That tracks. But if you say that the restoration is now no, no longer something that has to mirror the New Testament church, then your argument that women have positions of power in the New Testament church and therefore they should have it in the modern church, there's no argument there because you've already admitted that there's a lot of things that are different and it's no big deal. Yes. So I can't open my Kindle for some reason while I've got all this other stuff going on, it won't open. But, oh, that's um, okay. I think she says it here. By the way, it's a double standard, uh, in the article, in the article, I think they have it here. Yeah, this is what she says. As to the modern church, the researcher urges the faith's leaders to pray for additional prophetic revelation to validate and increase women's leadership and participation. Yes, but as you point out, it's a double standard. They're saying you don't need to have all the things from the early church, so we shouldn't even bother President Nelson with asking for things that are there, because the, mm -hmm. to be the true church, it doesn't need to have them. Right, and here's the other thing I want to say before I uh, totally lose my voice. Article of Faith number six, once again, reflects Joseph's misbelief that, yeah, this is the same church. He says, we believe, that's us, we, the LDS, we believe in the same organization. 
that existed in the primitive church, namely apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth. Though elsewhere he will say an evangelist is a patriarch because we don't got none of those evangelists in our church. But that's okay. We'll make it the same as a patriarch, and boom, we're in like Flynn. We exactly match. But in spite of that, in spite of that article of faith, here's what this uh, newspaper article says. By seeing the Utah-based faith, that's Mormonism, by seeing Mormonism as merely a reinstitution of something that already existed 2,000 years ago, we unnecessarily limit the power, scope, and purpose of God's work for us in this final dispensation. This is from the book itself that's being quoted. Thus, it is unreasonable to assume that positions and roles that existed in the ancient church, he says, are also present in the current iteration of the church or vice versa. Now compare that conclusion in this new book with what Joseph Smith said, and I think you'll find that they don't track each other, that they are actually contradictory to each other, and that they are trying to put something into the church now that was taught against by Joseph Smith. Yeah, it feels like so much talking out both sides of their mouths, both church leaders and the authors of this book. Again, no offense to them, but I don't see any other way to take it then they're trying to essentially nudge the church to progress, but do it by undercutting uh, the leadership, by kind of forcing their hand a little, by saying, here's here's the scholarship, you're going to have to do something with it, and undercutting and gaslighting the members by pretending that it was our fault for having become confused and gotten off track. Mm, um, always important to blame us, yes. So the next section here, Latter-day Saints and the Second Coming of Jesus. By the way, President Nelson, I don't have the soundbite handy, I've been looking for it, but there was a point in time where for a youth presentation, President Nelson told the youth that we were in the 11th and a half hour, um, that the second coming was nigh. But notice now this book is also starting to soften that up and give us room that the second coming could be so far in the future that we shouldn't worry about it. This Latter is really interesting to me because this is contrary to, to everything that President Nelson and his wife have been talking about since he became president. The Second coming is just around the corner. Wendy Nelson, 2016, January, BYU, Hawaii address, young adult devotional, said, what would you say if you knew that Jesus has already been appearing to select groups of his most devoted apostles in preparation for his second coming? Meetings that the internet and CNN and the blogger Knackle knew nothing about. Wouldn't you want to get your life in order? immediately wouldn't you be desperate that's it wouldn't you be desperate to start doing everything you're supposed to do because jesus is coming so we all need to look busy but yes this has been on and on and on what we hear from president nelson and yet now this book is going to try and back off of that and say hey we got plenty of time yeah so they say latter-day saints and the second coming of jesus christ today today Latter-day Saint leaders made it clear that rather than concern ourselves with whether the second coming of Jesus Christ will happen in the immediate future, we should focus instead on preparing the world for his coming by gathering Israel, which is its own gaslit thing, because the idea of what gathering Israel was, and we should do an episode at some point on that, but whatever gathering Israel was, it is completely different in today's modern church uh, in terms of concept, through missionary work and temple work, and by working toward creating Zion, 
a community where, and then it goes on, but just to note that they start to soften up that second coming. And then this part today, Latter-day Saint leaders, oh, this might be the same thing. Uh, let us yes, see what happened. Yep. Sorry. Let me go. Community where we can be united, live righteously and eliminate poverty. The mindset aligns closely with the book of Mormon, where the grand, and you'll have to say that word for me. Eschatological. Concern is explicitly the gathering of Israel through the spreading of the Book of Mormon, which was written to the Lamanites, and we no longer teach that. It's another doctrine that's gone because we don't know, because of DNA, we don't know who the Lamanites are anymore. We can't point them out. Yes, and I can't de- I can't decide whether I like eschatological references more than scatological references. Okay, well, I'm going to leave it either one of those because I can't say it. <laughs> I think I like the scatological references. Rather than passively waiting for the world to change, we are tasked with actively assisting in the creation and building up of a better world here and now. Recently, President Nelson urged Latter-day Saints to remember that the fullness of Christ's ministry lies in the future. The prophecies of his second coming have yet to be fulfilled. We are just building up to the climax of this last dispensation when the Savior's second coming will become a reality. So they kind of hint at it again. Um, Let's see here, top right. Some Latter-day Saints have emphasized works, weary of cheap grace and sensing the necessity of Christ's atonement, having real transformative effects in our mortal lives. Oh, by the way, who are those Latter-day Saints, Bill? That would be the leaders, the that apostles, would be the leaders and of the prophets. church. Yes. Yep. Others, but we can't say that in a church-published uh, yeah. periodical or book. And, and when they say others here, that also means church leaders. Others have recognized that overemphasis on works may miss the good news of the gospel and lead to toxic perfectionism. That's also a lot of apostates who have pointed out the unhealthiness of the church. Again, these writers of this book agree that it's not the apostates who have caused a moving away from the central doctrines of the church. It happened from within. Um, it happened from the top down, actually. Yeah. And overlook the witness of our ancient Christian predecessors that grace is the unmerited gift of God. And what they're basically saying is grace in the early Christian church is is in lots, it's taught in different ways. In the modern LDS church, it's taught in different ways. We don't really have a consistent doctrine of grace. Um, there certainly are folks within the early Christian church who seem to see it in a more loving way. And in our modern day, some some people, and again, leaders, have missed the mark. Uh, the divine love that moves us, works within us, and invites us and enables us to respond. And then this last one, for Latter-day Saints, some of the questions and answers of our ancient Christian ancestors may seem too speculative. It may seem as though they are looking beyond the mark or seeking to understand things that are beyond human understanding. Why did ancient Christians engage in such inquiry? For one, such questions were not mere intellectual curiosities. These questions go straight to the heart of faith in our redemption through Christ Jesus. They're talking about how questions are honored, um, uh, but opposition is not. And they're trying to play with that concept. And they're trying to say like, look, the only way we could ever get to anything is to have an open, honest conversation about stuff. And that means we have to have space to push back against things. And that happened in the early church and it sure as hell should be happening here. Yeah, and I'll say one of the the problems with Mormonism, or one of the interesting things I should say about Mormonism, is that whereas they've certainly jettisoned the idea of the Trinity and substituted in its place a very different version of the Godhead, what they have kept from the Trinity is the idea that a correct knowledge of God and an acceptance of that 
correct knowledge of God is essential to salvation because that's something that the Trinity says. And it's also something that appears in the articles, not the articles, the lectures on faith. Now, I'm not going to go into a big uh, discussion about that, but we know that lecture five has a very different description of God than the one that Mormonism embraces today. But it is in the lectures on faith that says that in order to be saved, one of the things you have to have is a correct understanding of the nature of God. Unfortunately, if you have the understanding of the nature of God taught today, it's different than the document in which that appears and which used to be the doctrine in the Doctrine and Covenants until 1921. Nevertheless, what I'm trying to say is the idea that it's essential to believe in God in a certain way was carried over into Mormonism. Yeah. And it has been quoted as recently as uh, Dieter Uchtdorf. We have that clip as well. We don't need to get to it. It is, when you go back, again, 1996, and you joined in 78, correct? Yes, and by the way, I'm thinking about something else. You finished that thought, and I'm going to say, look, if we have to go through President Nelson and President uh, Oaks, we should at least have a bit of a reprieve with Elder Uchtdorf, formerly President Uchtdorf, which I will ask to be played after you're done making your point, Bill. Just that from 96 till now, when I look at everything that's changed, and not just changed a little bit, but changed on its head, and you joined in 78, and you've gone through that same ride plus a little, and it really is amazing the claims that Mormonism made. It claimed to know so many things, and now it's shifted and moved, and it's retreated so many times that I have no choice but to recognize that a church led by prophets, seers, and revelators knows less and less with every passing day. Excellent point. By the way, I love this meme that you came up with, not only because it has Spider-Man, or two Spider-Man in it, but also... Well, there's, there's only one real Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah, you got two Spider-Man, two Spider-Mans, two copies of the Spider-Man. I don't know. But... <laughs> But you got the, the thing with the two Spider-Men, the two guys in the Spider-Man costume pointing at each other. And underneath it, you have the meme, no, he's the great apostasy. I am the ongoing restoration. Because now they're being described as the exact same thing, but we're using two different terms for him. One of them's yeah. approved by God. One of them, God gives a thumbs down, way down. So that's a wonderful, wonderful um, meme. And I did want to mention one other thing, okay? And that's this. This is how important it is historically for Mormonism to mirror the New Testament church. Not only do we look at the New Testament and then say, okay, we have the exact same. Oh, I've got this in front of me. Look at this. I've got the, um, what is it? Ephesians chapter four, verses 12 through 14 of memory serves, mm, right? How many so. times have we heard this? And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, <clears throat> excuse me, I mean, patriarchs. And some pastors and teachers, and pastors, of course, as bishops. At least there's a closer correlation between those two. For why? Why, bishop? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the common teaching with that is that this is why they had them then and why we need them today, and we continue to need them until... We all come unto this perfect understanding and grow to be like Christ. Until that happens, we need all these offices. It has to be the mirror example or the mirror image. But it doesn't just work that way. Looking at the New Testament and saying, okay, this is what we have today. 
It also works the other way historically in Mormonism is that if we have a teaching in Mormonism that's really important and essential to salvation, we will read that back into the New Testament, even when the New Testament says nothing about it, even if the New Testament contradicts it in places. The idea of marriage. Marriage becomes a saving, exalting ordinance in Mormonism. Well, there's nothing about it in the New Testament, except apparently Jesus going the other way on it, talking about they are neither married nor given in marriage in heaven. Mormons not to be deterred, and James Talmadge being one of the main people that I know of who did this, says, no, Jesus was married. And then forced that marriage into the wedding at Cana, where Jesus is actually just a guest, but now he becomes the groom, right? He's the guy who's getting married. So because Mormonism came to teach that marriage is essential to exaltation, and because Jesus is God, so he's got to be exalted, therefore he has to be married to, and we're going to force it back into the New Testament or read it back into the New Testament. And then to up that even a little bit more, Mormons didn't just believe that you had to be married eternally to be exalted. They also taught that your degree of exaltation was tied to plural marriage. And therefore, some church leaders, I think Heber C. Kimball was one of them, in the latter part of the 19th century, in general conference, taught publicly that Jesus was not only married, but that he was actually married to Martha and Mary, that he was a happy polygamist. Because if you got to be a polygamist to be saved, Jesus has to be a polygamist. So I only mention this to underscore how important it was for Mormons to mirror the New Testament that they will force current understandings onto the New Testament in addition to looking at the New Testament and using proof texts like Ephesians 4, 12 through 14 to demonstrate that this is, a, in fact, a restoration of the exact same church they had back then. Yeah, on that manual, there was one of the other things that said in there is that they would break the everlasting covenant. And it also strikes me that Mormons broke the new and everlasting covenant, right? That we ended polygamy and tried to keep it yes. going, but then through all of those uh, polygamous saints who went out to, to maintain the principle, we threw them under the bus. It also strikes me as, you know, you mentioned a unity of the faith there in, was it Ephesians mm -hmm. 4? Ephesians 4, 12 yep. through 14, seminary, it's, scripture yep. mastery. And so, By the way, which we don't have anymore. What's, yeah, we don't. No and, more and scripture mastery. No more reading the scriptures in seminary anymore. We are systematically, point by point, untethering this church from the standard works. From all of it. it. Not only did we have this, you know, we needed these offices to maintain a unity or get to a unity of the faith. We have heard numerous times the phrasing of doctrinal unity, unity of, of doctrine. And I just want to note that every single generation of Latter-day Saints would be out of doctrinal harmony with every other generation of Latter-day Saints. Like if you were to say, if you were to raise Joseph Smith up and you raised Brigham Young up and you raised George Albert Smith up and Joseph Fielding Smith, like these guys could, they, I would love to see that room of disagreement because they would all be adamant about what the church should be and not be and where it should change and where it should not change. And mm. those guys, those guys would be out of doctrinal harmony with every other generation of saints. Right. You put all those church leaders in one room with a knife on the floor and see who comes out at the end. Brigham Young. <laughs> yeah, 
you know, I'd like to put my money on Brigham too, but apparently John Taylor was a dastardly individual who actually murdered Joseph Smith. So maybe John Taylor, the cold-blooded killer, would come out of the room alive. I, I think we'll get to that story soon enough too, won't we? Oh, yeah. That's going to be the week after next. No, or, well, whenever. It's going to be as yeah, soon as we can soon. possibly get to it, folks. Soon. Um, so just FYI, I've had the banner at the bottom for a while, but I, I don't know if you're done or not, but I at least want to give the number out so folks can call in. Uh, number I think six, I've said my piece. 662-667-6667 or 662-MORMONS with an S on the end. Um, there aren't any callers in the, in the bank yet, so... Um, if you want to what's going on out there there's 490 of you watching nobody wants to call in i gotta imagine a few of you want to talk about how the great apostasy was presented to you and um and and what's going on and i'll keep an eye on it but maybe we can just put this back up and show a few more of these um let's see here what let me go up down here so the defection of individuals resulting so the defection of individuals a widespread apostasy of the church are we experiencing that right now Oh yeah. There's so we many, could, there's schisms going on everywhere. Yeah. We could go through all this. So, um, the most effective, you know, one of the amazing things is we've got schisms that are going on with, uh, of course, Denver snuffer. We've got schisms that are going on, um, which may or may not be consonant with Denver snuffers movement, but about uh, John Taylor, you know, the third president of the church being a cold blooded, blooded killer who whacked Joseph Smith in Carthage. We have all sorts of things going on. We've got uh, schisms apparently involving uh, hypodermic needles and vaccinations that are occurring. And even now, and we need to talk about this at some point, we've got Hannah Stoddard from the Joseph Smith Foundation, who is now arguing that Joseph Smith never used the seer stone when he was translating the Book of Mormon, that this is all hogwash that has been foisted upon the church by liberal historians such as Richard Bushman and um, Leonard Arrington, who somehow managed to fool the prophet seers and revelators into publishing their propaganda, which is not historically based. And they're trying to get us back away from the modern history of what really happened to the old version of what the LDS church used to teach. So it's going on everywhere at this point all of these schisms. And I think that a lot of the reason for it is because they'll, who is in charge right now of the LDS church? I don't see any leadership going on. I don't see a firm hand anywhere. They're taking, they're trying to take different sides on all sorts of positions, whether it's the LGBTQ issues, they're trying to take both sides of it. Lawyers. Yes. Thank you. My favorite kind of people. Thank you, Maven. Um, and so who's in charge is what I keep wondering. Who is in charge of this chicken outfit? And I'm not sure anybody really knows. Maybe there's a lot of jockeying for position. I think that's probably going on. But jockeying for position only happens where there's a vacuum of leadership. Yeah. Let, let me ask you, I'm going to ask you a few of these things, and you let me know if this is happening in the modern church. Vast numbers who had professed membership and many who had been officers in the ministry deserted the church. Yes. While a few, yes, while a few were stimulated to greater zeal under the scourge of persecution. Oh, yeah. That's the retrenchment that we're seeing that's going on at the same time as the fact that the church is hemorrhaging members 
the defection of individuals resulting in widespread apostasy from the church. Is that happening today? Apostasy from the church? Yes. From the church's point of view today, yes, that's happening. Internal oh, but that's it. Well, I'm sorry, but this is what the current church manual is describing as the apostasy that happened, the great apostasy that happened 2,000 years ago. And it's all happening again today, just as they described it. Internal, uh, internal dissension, schism, and disruption, whereby an absolute apostasy from the way in the word of God was brought about. Yes. And notice they're saying that when that happens, the apostasy is absolute. Like it's going to happen. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. And you look at Denver Snuffer and, and folks like Terrell Givens and Patrick Mason from the inside nudging mm-hmm. the church to be different. You look at how many people are walking away. We already you've talked got the, about those. You've got the apologists, the old farms apologists, who are out there trying to mix Mormonism with uh, science or secularism. Yep. Uh, that the the age of the earth including evolution into the idea of this and talking about uh, Mesoamerica as being the place where the Book of Mormon happened. All this stuff. Heartland theory versus the Mesoamerican. Yeah. And all this stuff is directly contrary to what leaders of the church have said, but they're trying to pretend that the new church that they have created, this hybrid organization that they have created actually accurately represents what the LDS church is. So it's happening all over the place. And I just don't see anybody who's taking the bull by the horns and being a strong leader. A lot of people think that uh, President Nelson is a strong leader. I see it differently. I don't see someone who's just monkeying under the hood with all these different things uh, being a strong leader. I think we need some real leadership here and we need a strong voice that says, no, this is the way it is. And it would be helpful if that strong voice we're saying the same thing as what Joseph Smith had said, but apparently that's not an option anymore. I'll change the wording a little bit. Changing of the simple doctrines. Has that happened? Oh, right. Hey, can you do this? Can you read? Let me read the lead up to that. This is from the church manual. The most important of the internal causes by which the apostasy of the primitive church was brought about may be thus summarized. Number one, go ahead. The changing of the simple doctrines with so-called philosophic systems. Elder Bednar and free agency. Absolutely. Um, Alterations to essential ordinances. Oh, gosh, yes, all over the place. In fact, now President Nelson is saying, hey, this is going to keep happening and you should expect it and rejoice in it because this is what prophets have been saying is going to happen all the time. We're going to be changing these ordinances until the end of time or until Jesus comes first, whichever happens first. And notice, by the way, corrupting or changing, authorized or unauthorized, those are all subjective. So changes in church organization and government. Right. There's been so many changes in the church organization and in government. But they say unauthorized because if we do it, it's authorized, and therefore it's okay to change anything we want. Notice if you change the word Savior with Joseph Smith. If Joseph Smith came back to the earth in today's modern moment, I doubt whether he would have recognized the Christian or the Mormon church as the one that claimed descent from which he had established. True or false? Oh, absolutely true. And he'd be going, what are you guys doing? And he'd probably excommunicate all top 15. Yeah. The power of godliness was no longer present. In other words, faith not to be healed. Yes. This is something that's really interesting to watch the LDS church as it has become devoid of gifts of the spirit. And that has been going on for a long time because the same thing we are taught happened in the New Testament church. 
and watching how it is that the LDS church through its leaders tries to reconcile the fact they've got no more gifts of the spirit with there still being the true church. Yeah. Um, it says, it says this is not a reformed church or a redeemed church. This has been restored after it was lost. So they're saying, look, whatever it was is gone and now it's been brought back. That doesn't leave a lot of room for things to be wishy-washy on what's restored and what isn't. Right. And by the way, that quote that you were giving is from the manual, but more specifically, it's from Spencer Kimball, who was the prophet and president of the church when I was baptized in 78. Yeah. He says here, the laws were changed. The ordinances were changed. The If I just put new here, the new and everlasting covenant was broken that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to his people in those days. There was a long period of centuries where the gospel was not available to the people on earth because it had been changed. That could match right. very much today. And um, by the way, that triptych that he uses, if you just scroll just back to where you were, yeah. um, or this triad that he uses, laws change, ordinances change, everlasting covenant broken. It's harking back to Isaiah 24, 5, which is a big apostasy scripture back in the day from the Old Testament. And it says that's what's going to happen. And that has been taken to be a sign of the great apostasy. And therefore, Spencer Campbell is using those words. He probably quotes it earlier in his talk. I love this one. In the early centuries of the Christian era, so we'll say in the modern moment of Mormonism, the apostasy came not through persecution, but by relinquishment of faith caused by the superimposing of man-made structure upon and over the divine program, many men with no pretense nor claim to revelation, speaking without Councils. divine authority or revelation, depending only upon their brilliant minds, Iring just described that, but yes. representing, as they claim, the congregations of the Christians in a long conference and erudite councils sought the creation process to make God, which all could accept. Yeah, and that's going back to the Nicene Creed type thing. But yes, exactly. They have no more revelation. Now they have to go to councils. And even though we'll admit that they're brilliant and they're wonderful and, you know, all that kind of stuff, they're without revelation and they're just talking about stuff and coming to agreements. And that is the new substitute for revelation, which is itself the hallmark of apostasy. They replaced the simple ways, the simple program of Christ with spectacular rituals, colorful display, impressive pageantry. I think of the pageants. I think of the videos we showed earlier of these uh, youth meetings that they're doing and these councils that they're having on stage with all the colors. Limitless. Well, we got rid of the pageants, though. President Nelson got rid of the pageants at Camorra and other places. So apparently we're getting back to the way things ought to be. And they had replaced the glorious divine plan of exaltation with an elaborate, colorful, man-made system. Um, you could see that you could see the modern church in most of that language. Yeah. And James Talmadge talks about the apostasy being the, the Christian church going into limitless pomposity was the expression. And I thought... You know, that's a pretty good description of General Conference. Yeah. All right. We do have a couple calls now, so I'll turn Yay. to those. First one is Roger. Let me pull him up here. Roger, you're, yes. on, the, you're on the line. Thank you. Uh, I was just uh, thinking about when I was a missionary and uh, began in 6970 with the original six uh, discussions that you had to memorize word for word. The, the first discussion was the creation of the church and the great apostasy and the restoration. That was the first discussion. And as you had your little uh, tabla de franela, your uh, flannel board, you put up a little um, 
church with a foundation of apostles and prophets and all the other um, officials. And then the exact wording was, was now that the church no longer has a foundation, what happened to the rest of the church? And then you'd pull the foundation out from under the church and, and your little uh, floundboard figure would fall down on the church, uh, down on the ground. And he says, that's right. It fell apart. Somebody says, it Roger, you're basic... misremembering. They're gaslighting you. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. I'm sorry. But no, that's no, the way no, it was. Right. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I'm glad that and, you're here and you... to remember that. Yeah, good of you, Roger. That was the basis of the uh, the entire six discussions was the great, the great uh, apostasy. Yeah. Yeah. And the need for a restoration and how Joseph Smith was the prophet of the restoration. He restored the church to what it was before. Yeah. Not to some other creature that we're trying to create now, but to restore it to what it was. This is the prophet of the restoration. I've never, I've heard that thousands and thousands and thousands of times in, in, in general conference, the prophet of the restoration, the prophet of the restoration. He restored the church. Uh, Russell and Nelson, we won't go into that. He's the new prophet of the restoration, he, uh, baby. Uh, he wants legal. to restore it in his own in his own way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's he, old enough to remember how it was in the New Testament church. I I I was there, yes. <laughs> no, not you. I say President Nelson. No. <laughs> what year did you oh, okay. serve the mission, Roger? I I served my mission from 69 to 71. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we need, you know, we need things like your statement on this show so that there's a recording of what, you know, how far back this kind of stuff goes. And obviously we've got generations we'll never hear from. Um, but this stuff goes back a long, long way. And now it's just being completely rewritten. Yeah. It was very important that you different. called and added that, Roger. Here. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Roger. The church that thank I believed you. in does not exist. It, no. it, apostat- it apostatized. Yes, and it I want to go back and, and underscore that. Go ahead, Roger, say your last thought, and then I'll let you go, and I'll say what I was going to say. The church that I believed in, that I spent all my strength giving my missionary experience, becoming a 70, and, and bringing many, many people into the church no longer exist. The things that I taught, the basic beliefs that I taught are no longer taught in the church. Right. And the the belief that Christ is right around the corner has been here since Joseph Smith started the church. My my great-great-great-grandfather, my uh, polyandry grandfather, Isaac Morley, was told by the prophets here and revelator and, and, and patriarch to the church, Joseph Smith Sr., that he would live to see Jesus Christ come in the flesh in his patriarchal blessing. Now, he was a prophet there and revelator. What happened to that? Yeah. Well, Isaac Morley must have sinned, and that's why he died prematurely. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> Otherwise, he'd still be alive, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right, just like Joseph Smith. 
if, if you live to this old, then you'll see Christ come. That's in the, still in the Doctrine and Covenants. 85. Thank you, Roger. You're welcome. Thank you. Have Bye. a great day. Thanks, Roger. By the way, I see Elder Uchtdorf down there. I had introduced him and never gotten around to him. This is Elder Uchtdorf talking very briefly. What was it he's talking about? I can't even remember right now, but it has to do with the apostasy. Oh, it has to do with the idea that we have to believe in God correctly to be saved. And he's quoting from the lectures on faith, even if he doesn't actually say that in his talk. The reference is in the printed version. What does true repentance consist of? We need a strong faith in Christ to be able to repent. Our faith has to include a correct idea of God's character, perfections, and attributes. If we believe that God knows all things, is loving, and is merciful, we will be able to put our trust in him for our salvation without wavering. Okay, so it was that line right before the last one where he says, in order to have faith in God, we have to have a correct understanding of his nature, his qualities or character, and his attributes. And that's directly from the lectures on faith. Yes, he had to read Charlie Harrell's book. Everything has changed. Yes, in the LDS church since its inception. There's nothing that's the same as it was originally. Yeah. All right. Looks like uh, maybe Ron is on the line. Ron, are you there? Hi, this is Hiram. Oh, Hiram? Am I on? Yeah, you're on, my friend. Go ahead. Okay, perfect. Thank you, Bill, and thank you, RFM, and, and Nathan, um, and Jamie showed each week. Uh, I think this is a really appropriate topic for the two of you to tackle, because it seems to me that apologists often lead the church kind of unwillingly sometimes on doctrine and academics. And it seems like there are some of these uh, thought leaders that currently sort of inhabit the quadrinacle um, that are really driving social opinion. And RSM, I think your background with apologetics and, and Bill, um, I think you're one of the sort of the free, free thinkers and the thought leaders in the Mormon world right now. And I think this is a really appropriate topic. Um, you to tackle. I, I've just been thinking back to my experience on my mission. I served in the southern United States in 2012. Um, and we were dealing with a very Christian, very evangelical population. And um, apostasy and restoration is kind of our bread and butter. Um, and we were, we were teaching like... <laughs> I don't know, it sounds, it, it sounds old school after what you have been discussing for the last couple of hours, but um, we, were, we were teaching the need for literal um, ordinances that were done just the way they've been done in the New Testament times, the same offices, you know, the 17 points of the true church. Um, and the cognitive dissonance that arose in my life when I started learning about temple ordinances and realized that in 200 years, the church had done the same thing with the washing and anointing that we claim the Catholics did to baptism. Um, and even some of the more recent busting around this endowment ordinance, I mean, it made it a lot easier for my wife from one point of view, but from another point of view, changing the endowment and the covenants made in the endowment really 
give my wife some cognitive dissonance. So anyway, I've, I, I kind of spewed and I'd like to take your, I'd like to hear your thoughts offline, but I just wanted to close by saying, I think that the church is playing the trial here. Um, when they, when they continue to make these changes. And I think that the, the apologists are, I don't know, sometimes it's, it's two steps forward and one step back because it's, it's as many things as I can see positive coming from this this rebranding of the apostasy, I can also see yeah. a whole lot of cognitive dissonance coming. Yeah. Anyway, thank you all thank three you. of you. I, I love you and appreciate you. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks, Ron. Appreciate you too. You know what I think? I think that I could summarize my thoughts about that in one sentence, and that is that when it becomes increasingly obvious that your church is in apostasy, as you have defined apostasy, it's important to redefine apostasy. Yeah, you don't want to be deemed an apostasy, right? As a church. So you got to redefine it. Yep. Uh, last call tonight, Ryan. I'm sorry, RFM, we have gone a little bit late tonight. Um, Ryan, you're on the line. Hi. Um, thanks for taking the call. <laughs> yeah, but um, I, I just want to, I mean, there's so many points I could talk about in my own experience. But um, first off, I want to say I served in a mission in 1998. Uh, the apostasy was the third discussion at the time. So still very much being taught um, this that recently. Um, but my major point is that I, I've had some really rough discussions with some family members over the last few years, and it has surprised me like how unaware of changes, of the changes being made that they, they've been, um, sorry, I'm losing my phrasing here, but like um, one, one very much in particular was from my dad and an uncle of mine who have taken, you know, to them, the um, lifting of the priesthood ban in 78 was such a huge thing for them. Um, they, they, they praised it, they welcomed it, they thought it was great. But in talking with them, they were like, oh, it was always said that it would happen someday. And I'm like, wait, but you guys were alive during the time that it was still being said, like, no, this is doctrine. This isn't just a policy, this is doctrine. And also that, you know, this is only going to happen in the last days after Christ has come again. And I'm, I'm just like, wait, like you really thought that this was just going to come around. And so you welcomed it. And I was like, wow, they, they, they really just shift their um, belief into thinking like whatever the rhetoric becomes to whatever the current claim is. And I was right. just like, this really disturbed me that I was like, you're really shifting with the wind here. Yeah. Another form um, of gaslighting, right? That Brigham Young said it would happen. But only after all of the sons of Adam have come and received the priesthood and gone, like it would be the very last thing to happen. And now we just simply go like, oh, Brigham Young said that they'd get it back. And that's sufficient. Right. Ryan, one of the things that surprised me. I'm sorry, Ryan. One of the things that surprised me is that to find out that gaslighting is not something only that one person does to another person. We have this capacity in order to maintain our worldviews to gaslight our own selves. And that's sort of what I hear you saying about your dad and your uncle in this regard. Yeah. Yeah, they they really just, I, it, it, it really floored me when I had these discussions with them. They're like, oh, you know, well, this is what it was. And I'm like, not at all. 
And, and I'm just like, and, and it was, and again, it was like, it, it isn't like, you know, and these, they are old enough to remember mm-hmm. that the time when it was very, being openly taught that, no, this is different. Like, you know, no, it, the band is absolute gospel, that the band is something that is going to be lasting until the last days. And it was just like, and yet how quickly they let their mem- memory shift and they adapt the um, arguments and everything that the church yeah. moved to. Yeah. And I was just like, this is disturbing. It, it really disturbed me to hear that. Yeah. And I can understand why the priesthood ban was the hill that the church would die on until it wasn't. And the practice of plural marriage was the hill that the church would die on until it wasn't. And the church's position on the LGBTQ issue is currently the hill that the church will die on until it isn't. Yeah. Thank you. And I, I'm, yeah. And I'm, if, if the, the moment they shift on LGBT issues, I am going to have such a big told you so. <laughs> oh, no, no. Because then they'll say, yeah, we, they, we always knew that they were going to change. Do oh, not no, underestimate the power yeah, of I, gaslighting, Ryan. Oh, but I, that, that's, uh, I, I understand the power of it, but that's, that's the issue I left the church on and I'm going to be, don't you dare. Yeah. ever claim that with me yeah thank I you i will ryan. not have it thank you okay hey thanks so thank much you. for calling ryan thanks for watching william charles makes a, a trenchant comment that the hill he will die on is camora and i think that's the battle cry of the heartlanders which which one the yeah the the hill camora the yeah. one in new york baby that's mm. the hill the heartlanders will die on there you go All right, my friend, great topic. And I think it was beautiful and important for you to note that this is now the next uh, area that the church is going to completely shift and change on. And I would imagine that that manual that we had up earlier with all the red underlines, this one right here, I imagine that will not be the existing manual for much longer. No, this is a long-term plan. And I think that there is some calculation in the way that it is rolled out, which is to try and do it in such a way as that nobody sees what you're doing. It's like Poe's purloined letter, which is hidden in plain sight. Anything else from you, my friend? That's it, except I'm really looking forward to next week when we get to talk about the, um, the documents and audio and pictures that I was able to receive after five months waiting from the Orange County, Florida Sheriff's Department about the Derek Corden I got to boxes and boxes of redacted stuff after five months. That's what you would think, isn't it? it is. The reality seems to be a little different, but we'll share everything that we have with you next week. Yes, that's on Mormonism Live next week.